Welcome to Mansi, a podcast about magic and why magic is super queer. My name is Elle Alder, and I'm a professional psychic and solitary eclectic witch. This is my co-host, RJ. I'm RJ Walker. I'm a spoken word poet, a voice actor, and a writer. Today, we have an episode on queer magic. Bonus! A book written by Tomas Prower. So yes, I wrote this episode. This is my baby of the uh, Utah Book Fest. Yes, the Utah Humanities Book Festival is sponsoring this episode and the SLC Magic episode we are doing live later. So this is um, my half of the episodes that were sponsored. And it's about queer magic, which is a book by Tomas Prower. Um, This episode is also sponsored by Under the Umbrella, a queer little bookstore coming soon to Salt Lake City. Follow them on Instagram at at Under the Umbrella Bookstore. They're pretty cool. Uh, They had a little booth at an event I was at, and uh, I got um, queer gifts for my queer roommates. And I got one of our roommates a, like, notepad Mm. that is – like a planner, but it's a gay agenda. Um, it's so good. <laughs> it's pretty I fun. I didn't realize it was the at the end um, under the umbrella. Yep, those were and the sticker Shop. I got you. Oh. Yeah, those were from under the umbrella. Wow. Um, so yeah, they're sponsoring this. Obviously, it's like topical because it's about queer things and their queer bookstore. Um, and as we've already said, the Utah Humanities Book Fest is also helping us sponsor. And they have not only this event, but events happening every September and October all the way throughout. So we have another month of um, events, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there's like poetry readings and like author Q&As. I'm doing a Q&A um, uh, I mean, I am moderating a Q&A and mm-hmm. interviewing uh, Alex E. Harrow, author of The Once and Future Witches, uh, about her book in just like a panel. So uh, yeah. check that out. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. That's the thing. Um, Queer Magic, the book, came into my awareness a few years ago when I owned my shop. I was looking for books to add to our merchandise. And um, I think exposure to a wide variety of information experiences creates circumstances for all of us to grow and expand our understanding of the world around us. Of course, this would bleed over into magical practice as well. I wanted to carry this book specifically because a large part of my customer base was queer, and we were going to have a booth at the Utah Pride Festival. Um, so I thought that it would be like, oh, this is a queer thing. This is a thing for me. So, you know, I thought it would sell well, but also I was excited about the book. Um, one of my employees flipped through it and told me that it was focused on different cultures of magic, and then um, that it also gives the readers some really interesting rituals to add in and ways to like create queerness inside of one's magical practice. <clears throat> It's we got some bad pollution here yeah. today. Have you seen it? It's a little grody out there. Yeah, sorry. I've been in New York where the air was beautiful and clear, and my voice is struggling today. So yeah, you were in the the fucking Shire for witches, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was in Lilydale, New York, and it rained and it rained, and there was so much water, and there was no smoke, and there was no pollution in the air, and it was great. So sorry about my scratchy voice. Um, but one of my employees was kind of telling me about this book, and when we were approached about doing episodes for the Utah Humanities Book Fest, I was like, I know what book I want to do it on, and I want to talk about this one. And then um, when we were coordinating that with the organizer, he found um, Under the Umbrella that wanted to sponsor this episode. So I was really excited about this, and it's good. Yeah. And uh, as the the recipient, the interviewee in in the this 
episode, <laughs> an episode that you wrote. Uh, I am also a straight cisgender man. Uh, so this yeah. is going to be uh, all seeing eye for the straight guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. RJ gave me like a, uh, a warning that he was going to make that joke. So I'm glad that we can follow through with it. So um, I do think a few things need to be addressed before we get too much further into this episode. Um, and that will become obvious as we go along. Are you ready? I am. I'm ready. You know, we've been having conversations about this uh, because you were going through the book. Mostly it was like your complaints and gripes about the yeah. book, which I'm sure will be apparent <laughs> in this episode. But hopefully you can cover some of the things that he missed uh, in, in his book. And, like, yeah. Talk about those. Um, I do think this is like a good time to give you, the listener, like a little heads up. Um, this is kind of a ranty episode. Like, there's a lot of parts about this that are um, erased and not talked about um, that make me mad. And so I talk a lot about that. We also talk about sex because it's impossible to talk about queerness without talking about sex and genitalia. It's just impossible to do that. In today's world, I think we're changing that, but that's part of it. So if you don't want to, like, listen to either of those things, that's cool. You're going to miss out on some education, but that's cool. So, yeah. Yeah, and Elle did uh, shit tons of research for this episode. Like a ton of – like read the whole book, (coughs) which had the worst narrator I've ever heard. Oh, so bad. uh, In audiobook format. He talked in – like this, in a sort of nasally – Can you say um, vagina like that? Vagina. Can you say penis? Penis. Yeah, it's bad. He was talking like uh, a mid-Atlantic sports announcer uh, that only had one tone. Maybe a mid-Atlantic meteorologist. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, I was like, is this, did they automate this guy? It took me, I'm not even kidding you, four and a half months to get through the nine and a half hour audiobook, which, like, I eat audiobooks for breakfast. Like, I am, I am just such a binger that, like, I have to know the whole story. So that was definitely a rough part of this book. Um, but I do think, like, I think that this book was, um, really good and really important and had some good parts about it that I want to talk about. But I think that I would be, I mean, I just think, like, ethically, I don't think that I could do something, um, without pointing out the obvious flaws that I found in it. I don't think that I could, like, feel I good mean, about that. the whole, like, point of these kinds of analysis, if we were just going to repeat what was in the book then why wouldn't you just go listen to the book? Yeah, and like... But we are here to be critical. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I want to be informed and I want to learn things. And in the process of learning things, we have to be confronted by uncomfortable truths about like things that we don't agree with or things that we feel like we could have done better or things that could be done better. And those conversations around that do nothing but actually help the people who are writing this kind of stuff and who are making art and are making this. So like, don't be afraid to be critical of the shit that you enjoy like i enjoyed the book i just also find points that i need to be critical about with yeah it. like did i think ready player one was a fun book yes yeah. <laughs> but the moment the moment you look at that in under any critical lens it's like oh my god ernest klein what the fuck is wrong with yeah. you why would you self-examine yourself for like three seconds anyway yeah so that's i think that that's like an important thing to talk about before we get into this um I hope you stick around. I worked really hard on this episode. Yes. L- I-, I, I am a testament. I watched L spend months working on this episode. Part of the reason that we haven't 
released episodes is a because we needed a motherfucking break and like yeah. my life has been rough uh and two uh we had these big episodes and big events for utah humanities book festival planned and we yeah. wanted to put as much energy as possible into that yeah so anyway Let's go. I'm going to go ahead and read you the bio of Tom, Tomas Prower um, as found on his website. So you kind of get a little introduction of who wrote this book. So here you go. Tomas Prower is the international author of multiple best-selling books. A graduate of the University of California, Santa Barbara, he holds two degrees, one in global socioeconomics and one in Latin American and Iberian studies. Super cool. Like, okay. I think that's that's an in, that's a... Uh, an important thing to note about where he comes from in how he writes and how he analyzes things. Mm -hmm. Being a natural-born globe trekker, he sought additional education at the Universidad de Chile while working as a translator for their literature department. Due to his fluency in English, French, and Spanish, he was given the opportunity to become a cultural liaison for the French government in South America between France, the United States, Chile, Peru, and the member states of Mercosur. I've never heard that. So Homie's been on an adventure. He's, yeah. He's so been like, around the block. He's like a very – and he's very into cultures of things. Like he wants to understand cultures and talk about it and like has the ability to – I think his – him being multilingual I think is also really important because he can analyze things in those languages and truly understand what it is without having an interpretation or a translator yeah. tell him what it is. So I think that's like another important thing to note about him. During this time, he traveled extensively in the Amazon jungle, learning as much as he could about the region's indigenous peoples. Upon returning to the United States, Tomas moved to Reno and became the external relations director for the American Red Cross in Nevada before moving back home to Los Angeles, where he had a brief stint as a night shift mortician. Yeah, what the <laughs> yeah i'm like working for the french government in chile fucking i'm like i know like four languages um i'm doing like magic i've got like two-ish degrees i don't was it two degrees or was it three. double mate three, three he's three degrees yeah and he's like you know what i just kind of need a little part-timer you know any corpse any corpse <laughs> joints open i just need a little moonlighting career <laughs> real I, quick he sounds like a wild person that we would absolutely be friends with Probably, right? yeah. like we would totally be friends with this human so uh, now he pursues his fascination for the mystical side of life as a full-time writer and author giving lectures and workshops around the globe what is not mentioned here that I think is awesome and significant is that he is a devotee of La Santa Morte and is part of a mystery school of hers in Los Angeles. If you don't know what those things mean or why it matters, don't worry. We're going on a deep dive of that. If you do know what that means and you're giving me the side eye emoji right now, just wait. I'm not sure you really know what you think you do know. And that's a big part about this that is intriguing. So now I want to give some background about myself. I think it's important to talk about the lenses through which we view the world and how those things can color the way we understand the world to be. I identify as a queer woman. Women. We said the blinky that, Did you just? That was creepy. This building's kind of janky, though. This, but that's never happened before. It was just that one oh, light. Is, is the lamp? And this lamp is like, <laughs> it's, it's a fucking noodle, like from Walmart for like 10 bucks. Ugh, okay. So now I'm going to try that sentence again. I identify as a queer woman. No blinky lights. We're good. Um, I have been an advocate, ally, and activist for the LGBTQ plus community since I was 16 years old. When I was in high school, I was on the Queer Straight Alliance board with the Utah Pride Center, and I was the president of our Queer Straight Alliance at my high school for two years. 
I've done countless amounts of donating, volunteering, and supporting my local and global community since then. I think this is an important thing to note because I want everyone to understand that I'm doing this research and probing into a community that I'm incredibly proud of, committed to, and that this is a special and important to me as like a human and a witch and a queer person, and especially because my identity often gets erased in a lot of these conversations. And that's actually... What made me really mad was the amount of erasure that I was experiencing when I was reading this book. So I have complicated feelings about people needing to prove their queerness, feeling pressured to come out, and about the fact that queerness is so often viewed as this fetish for other people to enjoy. I know we have a huge variety of listeners and many listeners who don't identify as queer and who also don't necessarily get involved in the politics of queerness. So I just wanted to lay another lens down about queerness and women and femmes who are queer. How are you doing, RJ? Are you good? Are you with us? I'm with you. Okay. What? <laughs> well, I'm I'm having just a little bit of anxiety about where the intro music goes. <laughs> it's probably at the beginning. I don't know. We'll oh, we missed it, it? Probably. Oh, God. <laughs> I was very focused on trying not to be an asshole about Prower, but also being like, Meh. so we'll figure it out. I'll, uh, I'll look at it and post. How about, yeah, I mean, we could put it after this whole intro when we actually start talking about the book. Okay. Because we haven't done that yet. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's why the face. Okay. That's why the face. I'm like, <laughs> when's it coming? Okay. So, we as a society have made huge amounts of progress in understanding and representing queer people. On the whole, we've really put in some work and laid an amazing foundation. In fact, being a white gay man is basically viewed as completely acceptable at this point in society. Like, would you agree with that? Like, we have pretty much like, okay, cool. The gay people are a thing. It it depends on where you at. Obviously, there there are inherent privileges oh just wait yeah that that come with that but at the same time you know in utah it's like really polarizing right where you know in some spaces absolutely totally normal but at byu you're gonna run into some problems okay well so um that is not to say that there's not trauma inherent in the experience of being gay in a society that is at its core Christian and homophobic. Mm -hmm. Being queer means you're going to have trauma in your life experience surrounding your queerness at one time or another. I am extraordinarily lucky to have incredible parents that just love me no matter what. I never imagined that I would be a queer person with family trauma um, around my queerness. And then when I dated my first girlfriend, her trauma and her mother's inability to get over our queerness was the primary reason for me ending that relationship. So even though that isn't something that, like, comes from my parents, it came from her parents in terms of it being like, well, why are you dating a woman? Why are you dating a psychic? Like, why all of these things that are choices that you don't have to make? Um, And that's just not that's never not going to be part of your experience when you're dating people um in a queer queer way even if a queer person is raised in a perfect and loving household we still exist in a world and society that is at its core homophobic our queer friends lovers family members etc will have to deal with violence of one kind or another due to their gender identity and sexual orientation period full stop if you are queer in any way shape or form you will have you know, trauma related to that in today's society, no matter where you are in the world. Um, I understood the reality of that when I was in high school. One of my godmother's friend's partners was in the hospital dying of AIDS, and he was not allowed, um, his husband was not allowed to visit because they weren't married, and they were not legally allowed to be married in America at the time. And this is like, you know that like Twitter thread that was like, hey, 
What radicalized you? Like, what was the thing that just made you so mad that you couldn't not be, like, an activist? You know what I'm talking about? That thread? Yeah. Yeah, the trend. Well, just, no, just, like, the thread talking about it. Like, just on Twitter, people being like, well, what radicalized you? Then people, like, retweeting it being like, this is my thing. Yeah, I don't – I kind of remember the original, but I think it's, it's like, a running trend now. I'm sure. Where people just say, here's what radicalized me. Okay, well, what radicalized you? Um, not with, it doesn't have to be with queerness, just anything. Uh, well, uh, I think having my entire like belief system and support network, like falling, Vanish crum- overnight. crumbling beneath me when, when I, when I show exhibited signs that I didn't fit the, the mold, mm-hmm. like the moment I was like, you know, I don't think this Mormonism thing is for me. It was instantly like I was cast out, homeless, had nothing, severely mentally ill, had to put my whole life back together, uh, you know, tried to kill myself and failed, realizing that there are no like support systems outside of the church. And then all of a sudden I was like, I I understood what systemic issues were. And like, we didn't talk about that growing up. I didn't even know gay people existed until I was like 17. Yeah. Right. I didn't even know that was a thing people could do. Um, Yeah. But after like getting cast out like this and then actually listening and talking and meeting to these other people who were outcasts like me, I was like, oh my God, the world is a bigger place than I thought. And it's full of problems. And the problems weren't the ones they were telling me about in church. The problems were how I used to be and the church itself and the systems that people like me had created. Um, to, you know, basically oppress people and solidify power. Like there's that Christianity victim complex. Like you see people on TikTok that are like, oh, well, I'm going to be glad when I go to jail for being Christian. Like the vast majority of our politicians and lawmakers and law keepers are Christians. Yeah. Right. Um, so having that persecution complex sort of broken down and then seeing that it was all just a big fake facade that radicalized the ever living fuck out of me. Yeah, I like um so when like when I was younger, I mean my parents were I like did not hear the N word. That was like not a word that I knew until I was like 15. And like literally my next door neighbors were from Africa and our like best friends from our family. One, um, the father was from Iran and the mother was from um, Austria and they had two kids. And those were like our best friends that we played with all the time. And so a lot of the groups that like, oh, and my other next door neighbors were from Mexico. And so I just grew up in like really diverse like friends and stuff, but that's because I wasn't Mormon. And so it was like, if you're not Mormon, everything else gets clumped together. So I was just like part of that. So my parents were never like, I don't know, they just weren't like shitty about social shit. And then when I was 16 and my godmother was kind of telling me about her coworker, whose husband, which they were not allowed to be married, (laughs) and they were not legally allowed to be married in America, um, was in the hospital dying of AIDS and that he couldn't go see him, that like he just was just going to lay there and die by himself. And this is at the time, I must have been a junior in high school. And this is when like gay marriage was a really, really hot button topic. And yeah, I that was, was in, like prop eight times. Yeah, I was in AP Gov, um, AP government, which for people who are not in America, that's like advanced placement government studies of America. And we were talking about it. You get college credit for and that one. You do. And um, I had, you know, a bunch of 
fucking Mormons in my class. I know that are all oh. like, gotta gotta be a doctor. Oh well, actually, do the college credit um, in high school. Since I don't you're going think on your that mission. I don't think that it's fair that my religion will be required to allow gay people to get married in it. And I remember like someone saying that in class. And I fucking lost it. I just lost it. And I was like, please tell me, like, which fucking people you think are like, I really want to be Mormon and gay and married. Like, you've made it apparent that gay people are not allowed in your religion and you don't want them. Why do you think they're going to show up and demand to get married in the temple? They're fucking not. But meanwhile, people are dying alone in the hospital because you are offended. Because you think that your church is more important than these people's lives. And yeah, that was, it was just a moment in which I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know right now, um, if, if COVID has taught me anything, especially dealing with uh, my mom and stepfather who are right now sick with COVID yeah. and refusing to get vaccinated, um, the religion will always mean more. Uh-huh. Uh, the 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 afterlife, the glory of God, all of that stuff will yeah, mean and more like, that's than, fine. than the lives of other people. And it's yeah. this weird toxic myth that's been in evangelical American Christianity for uh, a good solid while. Hey, can we talk about queer stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Let's do it. I'm just saying, like, I totally get that. I understand that. Doesn't fucking matter. I don't care. I don't care about, like, Mormons and why they think they're more important. I care about people who are dying without their spouses. You know? I just don't, like, that radicalized me more than anything was just, like, imagining a life in which I wouldn't be able to visit someone that I love just because some fucking people had a sacred book that said so. Because there was a book that said. So... Um, we have to understand that that was our world 12 years ago. That's where we were at. That's the, those are the conversations we were having around queerness. Um, we're now having conversations surrounding gender. Gender was never really a thing, like, even when I was in high school. Do you remember talk, anyone talking about gender in high school? No. Not big, at all. Big taboo. Yeah. Um, we're now talking about raising kids without a predetermined gender identity and therefore without a predetermined sexual identity. Like, that's why those two things matter, because if you're born into a pre-specified gender, then there are assumptions about who you will be attracted to sexually, even from being a baby. And it's pretty wild that we're living in a time where people are like, I don't fucking want to do that. Like, um, our friends that are going to have a baby that are like, nope, we're not doing boy and girl colors. We're going to do, like, earth tone pagan shit. Like, that's something that we haven't had in a long time. Part of this shift in attitude has come um, that about queer people has come as queer people, primarily gay men, are taking political positions. Thus, gay white men are now at the point that they can reach pretty close to the maximum amount of power a person can have in America. So if you look at – and like in Canada, mm-hmm. right? Like when you look at that, are there queer women that are in those positions? Are there like tra- – I think there we've got one transgendered senator, right, who's a woman, I think so. In America, I'm pretty sure. So there's like a couple of examples, but there are like literal leaders of countries that are white gay men. And that's something that we need to like talk about in terms of like they have decided that certain taboos like someone being a homosexual isn't an impairment, but like um, Hispanic people, Latinx people, black people, that is an impairment. So we need to like look at these things in terms of like other forms of privileges, as RJ said, um, impacting that. Mm -hmm. So – 
People will say all day long that they are not queerphobic, that they even went to their brother's wedding to his husband. However, when I have had conversations with my cisgendered male friends and partners about my queerness and identity, I am met with, well, you can't really be bi because... Or, have you had sex with them yet? You don't know if you're gay unless you've had sex. Or, ooh, can I join? One of my cisgendered gay friends differentiates between lesbian sex and other kinds of sex because lesbians can't have real sex. Oh, no. So, do you want to just, like, take a minute and talk about that that, maybe from... It sounds like somebody who's never actually had good sex. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, I feel so bad for (laughs) him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Listener, you might be feeling confused about why someone would ask me those questions. Or you might be one of those people that feels like if they were close enough to me, they would ask me those same questions. That's okay. It's because of misogyny and people being uncomfortable with the dynamics that lack masculine energy and or a phallus. I want to take a moment right now to, like, jump into, like, my huge diatribe about, like, phalluses and Greek mythology and lesbianism. But I'm going to talk about that, so I'm going to save it. I want to point out again that I am a queer woman. Queer women who are not solely interested in other women often face discrimination both from other queer women and from men for not being a gold star lesbian or not being queer enough when they only have a male partner. This erasure is experienced almost constantly if someone is a queer person who is attracted to more than one gender but is in a monogamous relationship. So that would mean someone who's bisexual, someone who's pansexual that is dating like... I don't like if they were dating a woman and it was a woman, um, then they would be like, oh, well, you're in a lesbian relationship Mm -hmm. when no, it's not what that means. It means that there is a person who's a bisexual dating another woman and that like almost exclusively has nothing to do with her identity. So that's something that we kind of need to talk about and acknowledge that that's how erasure happens. Any gender of this partner, um, Any gender of partner that this person picks will appear to be their preferred gender all the time. And in order to correct that perception, it's the queer person's job to basically correct people's misconceptions about which box they fit into whenever it's brought up. Which, if you're a woman or a femme dating another woman or femme, you will will be constant because there are people who are fucking obsessed with how women have sex with each other. Like, people fucking are like... What do you mean queer sex? Um, And I think I also like people are probably wondering why I call myself a queer woman and why that's like not more definitive because queer is like kind of an umbrella term for things. And I think it's and I do that because I think it's super weird that people feel entitled to know who I want to have sex with. That's really weird that people feel entitled to know like what if any kind of genitalia I prefer. Right. Is that weird? Yeah. And uh, in a certain way, like the big long acronym can be limiting because mm-hmm. it's not – it's a whole spectrum. It's not yeah. It's it's not as small as just like certain things that can fit into certain boxes. Right. It's a whole fluid spectrum that can even change for people over time. Well, and I mean I would say that like the nature of queerness is expecting and being OK with those things changing and also understanding that your queerness is going to be impacted by other things. So like I know a lot of queer older adults that are like in their 50s where there was never conversation about gender. But now they're like, well, but I identify 
identify as like non-binary or I'm trans now and they've spent their whole lives as gay but now maybe they're straight according to their new gender identity and so those things are constantly shifting and I also think like my polyamory like me being polyamorous is part of me being queer that's part of my queer identity and there are some people who feel that way and some people who don't feel that way yeah so for me I would never give myself the label as queer just because I'm polyamorous that's fair. I would I would not do that. I would not claim that uh, mm. as as an identity as like a cisgendered uh, straight man because <laughs> it doesn't feel like your space where you belong. No, it's 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 not my space. I mean, there's a lot of queer people in that space, mm-hmm. um, and like love, accept, and protect them. But at the same time, um, to give myself the label of queer just because I'm polyamorous feels like an invasion into those spaces that have excluded people like me because of the oppression from people like me and the misunderstandings that come from people like me. Um, So for me, polyamory is also like a little more of a choice for me um, Mm -hmm. where I'm choosing to be polyamorous just because I think the structure can be healthier and has a lot more potential. There's Yeah, there's a lot of things. And I think like part of what makes – Part of, like, polyamory being queer for me is that um, queer relationships often do not have the same structures like heterosexual relationships in which there's, like, the beginning, you date, you find out if you're going to get married, you get married or you break up. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. like that's kind of the path of a lot of heterosexual relationships. Um, And that's like the expected path of them. And a lot of times in polyamorous relationships, like you're dating someone because you enjoy their company because you want to be around them for however long that lasts. There's not as many limitations. There's not saying, okay, date this person until you're ready to marry them or break up with them so you can find the person you do want to marry. Of course, inside of polyamorous relationships, there are marriage. There is marriage. And that's really significant, important and something to talk about. But that like that difference between like I'm queer and my queerness, like polyamory is part of that queerness for me versus RJ saying, well, polyamory is not queerness for me. It's totally fine and great and cool because queerness takes a lot of different like forms and we just need to be like, cool, you're queer. That's great. Like that that should be the the approach that we take, in my opinion. OK. How are you feeling? Are you feeling – did you get some education? I, I did, you know. Do you the, have any questions? I mean, like, do you have any questions from the perspective of a listener who maybe isn't as, like, entrenched in the politics of this that they might have that I haven't answered, anything like that? Um, It's just really hard because I feel like they, they would – know these basics and somebody I would hope. and somebody who is closed minded would not even click on this episode. I know. Uh so well, but I think so like when I was talking as I was writing this episode, um I was talking to my mom about it and she was like, I just don't understand like why we need to talk about sexuality at all. Like I'm not really sure why it matters. I don't know why things need to be queer. Why does magic have to be queer? Why do you have to be upset if there aren't like feminine love stories inside of this queer magic book? And I was like, because people like me and people who love people like me have been erased for so long that we've been told we don't matter and we don't have a history and we don't have myths to look up to. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my question is, uh, where does magic come in? Right. Um, But... Um, yeah. I, you cannot have a conversation about queer magic without like, having a basis of understanding queerness. And you know, I, the, one of the things that I that I tell like boomers who are open minded but are struggling with mm-hmm. like new language is that uh, one like it's okay to just be like, 
oh, I didn't know. Yeah, like I didn't and then, know. And then okay. make, make a mistake. Like if you make a mistake, you just say, oh, I didn't know. Sorry. I'll, I'll fix Th- that. Thanks for letting me that, know. Thank you for taking that, the time. That's like a good like 90% of yeah. how to deal with it. Um, and I for think- two, like you don't have to like really study something to accept somebody. When yeah, they you tell don't have you, to understand it to get When they tell you something or- about themselves, you can give them the benefit of the doubt and just <laughs> believe them. Be like, cool. Uh, just be like, Oh, cool. I don't have to know everything about this. I can just accept and trust you. And if uh, a specific question or something related to it comes up, we can have a conversation about that when we get to that bridge. Yeah. And I think so um, when I kind of had this conversation with my mom that I was like, you know, all of these love stories, all of these women have been erased and we don't have the history and there aren't, um, you know, necessarily mythological deities. There aren't anything for like young queer people to look up to and point at and say, that's that's what my love can look like someday. And that's why it matters. That's why we need to have representation. That's why we need to have black movies. That's why we need to have movies for like Asian cultures. We need to have all of these things so people can look at something that exists and say, oh, I can have that too. You know know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like um, something I noticed in my lit history classes was it was like all straight people. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we're looking at the Victorian era, which is considered like the prudish area, like you Mm -hmm. can't go like outside of like the defined boxes and sex is only for procreation because the world will end from overpopulation if we do it for fun. Mm -hmm. uh, And you'll be corrupted if you have blowjobs. But um, blowjobs. Yeah, you'll be corrupted morally. (laughs) Um, So I pointed out in my class, I'm like, you know, uh, Dickens is cool. And yeah, we can talk about him. But uh, here's this. My favorite Victorian poet is Michael Fields and uh, Michael Fields writes love poems to his wife. Mm-hmm. Spoiler, Michael Fields is actually two lesbians in a trench coat uh, writing love letters to, to each, each other. other. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> and then publishing them as Michael Fields because they had to erase themselves for safety. Um, yes. Right. And so the reason we have to talk about this is because – the only way to really understand these subcultures that are so important and give us so much. There's so much context. Like the, like the poetry of Michael Fields is so valuable, right? Um, but you have to like really take away some of the obscurity surrounding that that um, Michael Fields had to put up to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah and that's like – that, yeah, there's so much of that that, like, is important. And I think, like, that kind of the question of, like, where does the magic come in was a hard one for me in this because of just kind of the way that Thomas Prower had, like, structured um, his book. It was, like, the only magical parts were really, like, this is a challenge that I have to add to your magical practice. And those things are valid, but it's mostly just talking about mythology. So um, I needed to, like, give a really solid understanding of, like, the lenses through which I am reading this because I want people to know that if a gay man picks up Thomas Prower's book, his experience with the book is going to be different than my experience with the book because he will not be like my kind of queerness doesn't exist here he won't have that reaction to it and that reaction is valid and something that has to be talked about otherwise we're never going to fix the problem of erasure yeah uh 
Anyway, this is all to say uh, Michael Prower talked almost exclusively Thomas about – Thomas Prower. Thomas uh, talked almost exclusively about uh, men. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So here we go. There, there isn't much narrative in there, I'm, no. I'm guessing. There's not like stories and biographies of like, there specific are s- people there's that not, follow a narrative arc. It's mostly – so I'm going to talk. Now is where – we're going to start talking about the book. So I have one more paragraph, and then we're going to do the intro music, dear listener. That's where it will be. We'll say. We're deep in with we're, that we're, intro I know. Music. Well, I mean, but, like, we're not even talking about the thing we have to talk about because I feel as though I had to lay so much groundwork to even get to the point of talking about I'm going to have this. to put in prologue music. Fuck, yeah. We'll have to find it. <laughs> okay. Front matter music. <laughs> I went on this huge educational rant on sexuality and the fact that we need to, one, respect women and femmes. Two, stop asking if you can have sex with them, especially if you have a femme partner. If that is a thing for you, shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up. If, like, she's dating someone, don't be like, hey, do you two want to fuck me before they've even had that conversation between them? Just, like, how about just let women approach you about having a threesome if they would like to do that? Let's just agree to do that. Three, Acknowledge queer women when we have conversations about the queer community and to work to correct the erasure queer women have been the subject of for centuries. So I just wanted to say, like, those things are really important. A little bit of diatribe about my life, but also lots of good stuff. Okay, we had to do this because I'm about to call out Tomas Prower, and I wanted everyone to understand why I'm upset about this otherwise wonderful book. Intro music. Oh, thank God. Oh, the release. The release. I'm free. That was some edging for everyone. <laughs> you lost my your headphones, headphones. My headphones blew off. The of orgasm me. was, was too like, strong. Like, it was like an episode of Food Wars where it just like was blown away. <laughs> okay. Magic is a fabulous book that takes a shallow-ish dive into the cultures from around the globe. One thing that I absolutely loved was the way that Prower explored the various attitudes towards queerness in cultures around the globe. I said globe twice, and I'm leaving it. <laughs> well, if there's anything that uh, I know about, it's shallowish dives. Shall- uh, shallowish so, dives. <laughs> that's like the majority yeah. of the show is shallowish <laughs> dives. One thing that was particularly interesting is that some cultures, African and Aboriginal tribes specifically, view queerness as an import that came from Western society's influence. Many other indigenous cultures tend to have a somewhat complex and often fairly lax relationship with queerness. Prower does an excellent job of explaining all the kinds of anal sex and genital alteration committed against penis owners for other penis owners slash men to have sex with them. Oh, well, uh, that might be a selling point. It might not be. <laughs> just, yeah, like it's it really depends on if you want to. Can you do the voice? What voice? The voice. The Oh. The rectum is oh, open. Anal. <laughs> just the anal. Anus. Anal. Anus. Can you say bottom? Bottom. Yeah. <laughs> Bottoming. The top. <laughs> if you want to hear someone tell you like really it like Sounds like he's doing a horse race though. <laughs> like 
Open. There he goes. Dildo's on top. Little Dildo's on top. Oh, he's getting overtaken. He's getting overtaken by Big Daddy. Can you explain using a stick as a dildo? Because there was some graphic identifications of that in Aboriginal tribes. Well, you see, anything can be a dildo if you are brave enough. Yeah, so if you want to hear that... It's like the, it's the fucking the guy who does the Legend of Korra like intro like recaps at the beginnings it's so of episodes. Bad. It's so bad. <laughs> and he's like, there's one section of the book because Tomas Prower is like a, a queer, you know, just like he knows so many queer people and things. So he had like interviewed this drag queen from Brazil and um had the the narrator read his um read the drag queen's like I guess testimony or like essay. It was like an essay, really. I honestly don't think he could have found a straighter or wider narrator. It was narrator bad. It was for, really... for this. I'm like, please. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything about this narrator uh, personally. But the it's pretty obvious that like the narrator is very disconnected from the people that the book is written about, and that's a problem. Yeah, and I think the publisher, when when people do nonfiction, I find that publishers tend to make the mistake of. Oh, we need to find somebody who has such a neutral sounding voice yeah. so that it is well, as neutral as possible and doesn't take any clear stances. It just regurgitates facts. And, you but know, that's I have not to great s- listening. Well, I have to say that that's, that that's how the book was written. It is a lot of like, this is the an- anthropology of these cultures. This is what I've studied. This is what I've found. And so it does have that like dry lens over it. But you can do that as a narrator and still make it like exciting yeah, and conversational. I'm not, I don't even need it exciting. I just need it listenable. Yeah. And it was not. <laughs> so, yeah. One of the perspectives that I really liked him pointing out was a view of queer people being the traditional magic holders in many ancient cultures. Have you found that in your research? Um, like the erasure? No, uh, sorry. The um, queer people being magic holders, like the belief oh. of like shaman being queer and two spirit people. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we covered that whole, we did that whole sex magic episode. Um, yeah, and- which is like basically talking about people really in that being queer. And for the most part, when people are oppressed for magic, uh, a lot of times they're being oppressed for other reasons and then the label becomes magic because we cannot even talk about queerness we cannot even mention it or fathom it so it must be the devil right in several different cultures around the world people who are transgendered or gender non-conforming were often viewed as special and selected by divinity to connect their tribes to the sources of magic the belief of this really comes from the balance of masculine and feminine energy required to successfully navigate and use magic I've said it before on this show, and I'm going to say it again. Magic has always been for those that don't fit the mold. It exists for those that are unafraid of darkness, that see and recognize the darkness inside of them, and and instead of hiding from it, they dive straight into it, often because they don't have any other option. This tradition has been honored throughout history. I'm confident that we would not have access to the lot of magic traditions we have today without queer people. I'm incredibly impressed with the anthropological lens of this book, and it's really apparent that Prower worked incredibly hard to encapsulate a huge variety of queer experiences in such a succinct and easily digestible way. I just wish he'd taken even one third of the time talking about various kinds of anal sex to talk about queer women in any of these cultures, and that really sucks. That is a that is a major bummer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also like sort of the erasure of like trans and non-binary uh, narratives uh, in there too. I'm sure there was a little bit of it, right? At least um, a little. I would. I. I mean, I think that. 
I would say that the erasure happened, and I'm going to talk about this, but the erasure happened in my perspective specifically for people who are born with a vulva and vagina that have masculine traits and qualities and want to be gender nonconforming in a more masculine way or to be transgendered as a man. Like I saw, we talk, he talks all day long about all of these men who are women and that have these women qualities and that are passive in sexual counter encounters and how that has really helped and how like these shaman needed to be men that were also women at times and that queerness. There's almost nothing talked about women who transitioned to being men or um, trans people or gender nonconforming mm. women, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that erasure, I, I think, is there like and, that. And I see this <laughs> constantly from like new age spiritualists, this like erasure because it's constantly like divine feminine, divine yeah. masculine. And this is feminine, this is masculine, this constant like binary reinforcement. Yeah. Uh, specifically from like the Ram Das era, like hippie spiritualists. Yeah. Um, that have come well, up through the 80s. And I think a lot of that also happens because um, feminine energy for so long has been viewed as this like negative thing, this like weak thing, this thing that we shouldn't try to embrace. And so I think that there is a tendency inside of like when we look at the history of magic and how it like has come forward that we're trying to reclaim the power of feminine. And so we don't want to look at instances of like women choosing to become more masculine or being more masculine or having that embodiment of being more masculine. That's viewed as like a negative thing because they're leaving the feminine. But we're going to celebrate men that embrace their femininity because they're embracing the correct thing, which is feminine. Right. So I think that there's a lot that, of that happening, which that is That sounds bad. like um, uh, magical turf. It's uh, bad, Magical yeah. turfiness. Yeah, so that is something else that I noticed in this that like that's specific things that I cover and talk about in here. So I went into this book pumped to learn more about the connections to magic and excited about the anthropological lens that this was written through. And I spent about eight and a half hours of the Audible book waiting for Prow to bring up any deity that was femme and queer and or a femme patron slash a protector of the queer people. When he finally did, I almost wept. The insertion of the stick into the... <laughs> oh, my God. Well, in that specific... So in that specific part, he was talking about um, these specific tribes in which, like, children would simulate copulating as, like, part of, like, viewed as, like, a very normal part of society and, like, part of culture. Mm. And so he was talking about how, like, queerness in these kids was totally normal and queerness in the adults was normal as well. And specifically, he was talking about girls using, like, sticks as dildos. And so I will never be... <laughs> Without that fucking information. Well, uh, <laughs> why? Why did I? Why did we need to talk about that? I don't know I guess, why that needed guess, to be talked about. You know what? Um, I don't know why he had to do it in a mid-Atlantic <laughs> voice, at least. Right? Like it just makes it. I think that they were going for like analytical and dry, and it just made it so much worse to like just hear him saying vagina in that vagina that over and over again. It just was so bad. And he like goes into like some very in-depth descriptions of like genital mutilation. And I have a hard time with the term mutilation because if you're using it in terms of like what was done in ancient cultures, I don't want to look at those things as like barbaric or something that I'm like, oh, you're not in this culture. You didn't know. Like we're so much better than them. But I mean, at the point that you're like literally cutting apart genitalia in order for it to be used as a different sex organ um, on children, I think we can call that mutilation. Yeah. Um, at, at a certain point, 
Um, and and like there's the whole like movement of men who are just really mad that they were circumcised. Yeah, the yeah, um, which I get, and, and I mean I don't have like, a penis, but I get I, I sympathize it. with them e- even even if their arguments and uh, protestations sometimes are a little cringe. Um, yeah, and that's a yeah. little pita pita style cringe, pita yeah. flavored cringe. But um, uh, you know, I I I am circumcised not really because of any religious reasons, just because. That was the thing. It's become a That's tradition. That's what people do. Yeah. That's what people did from some misinformation like in the early like 1800s. Uh, you know, but I will never know what I'm missing out on with my extra foreskin. Um Yeah, I know. But like at a, at a certain point you have to like yes, recognize that and be critical of it, but also like understand the cultural lens and implications and just because uh some ancient tribe did something, it doesn't mean that you have to. It means you can analyze it and see like, oh, how did that work out for you? Yeah, like and I think that's the thing. And I mean, I think if you're a person who is well, I think if you're a person who is able to recognize, like, our lens on the things that we understand to be true is different from what is, you know, acceptable or looked at in other cultures. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you're – you need to, like, be able to set aside how you feel about sexuality and just be open-minded. I think Thomas Prower does a really good job of just presenting the information. Wait, there's I, a, there's an anthropology term. I, I will look it up. Keep going. Um, I think he does a really good job of not coloring it any specific way, of just being like, this is what was done – it's fine. I just didn't need so many details of really graphic things like that. So um, I was really excited to – did you find the one? I'm, oh, I'm getting there. It's in my t- anthropology textbook. So oh, I got like open candle. Like. <laughs> you got to do the whole thing. Okay. So I was really excited for him to bring up any deity that was feminine, any deity that was like made to be a protector of queer people, because that was something else he didn't really do. He didn't really say like these are the people, like this is the patron saint of queer people. He didn't do that until he did. And the deity he pointed to is La Santa Morte, a feminine holy death that is worshipped specifically in Mexico. And she is specifically worshipped in prisons among drug traffickers, those doing sex work, and others that have been rejected by Mexico's staunch Catholicism. Prower basically says her name and then says, I'm not going to spend time talking about her because I wrote a whole ass book about her and you should just go read that. I was devastated, just like super fucking gutted because I had to read the other book. So I did. So I read the other book to actually dig into the only femme queer deity that he wanted to bring up in the whole book. And that was something that made me really mad. (laughs) Um, As I was kind of realizing that he wasn't going to, you know, like I finished the book and I was like, oh, Prower's not going to talk about the things that I want to talk about. He's not going to talk about queer femmes. He's not going to talk about things that I can relate to in my queerness. And then I was like, all right, well, fuck it. I guess then I'm just going to go do my own research and find my own stuff. I found the I found the term. Okay. Uh, so when you are centering your own culture, when looking at another, that's called ethnocentrism. Yes. Which like a brain should have known. That yeah. Uh, it was brain farting. But yeah, eth- eth- ethnocentrism is what you want to avoid whenever you're looking at. You know, another another culture. And it's something that I try to avoid when I yeah. when I do these episodes. Yeah, I will take time to like take a note and be like, this is how 
like the the dominoes fell like from that yeah. to now mm-hmm. um but you want to avoid centering your own culture and your own time when looking back especially when you're putting your own like values on top of them that's bad right and like you can totally be critical and be like oh yeah uh they should have known better mm-hmm. uh you know yeah. but uh, at the same time, you can also be understanding. And, you know, the whole point of this is to, like, understand culture and find ways to have it move forward in a positive way. Yeah. Okay, this is a very salty paragraph, but this is – because the rest oh, of it hasn't been salty enough. Oh, boy. But I did read about her, and I found a couple of other femme deities that represent and are worshipped by queer women and femmes. So – this is me offering you the things that were too much effort for Prower to put in this book <laughs> about queerness, about 80% of which is focused on masculine energy, penises, and the way the ways that men can accept and be empowered by feminine energy in their lives. Burn! Yeah! Burn, Prower! Fuck! Burn! <laughs> so it's too much effort for him, so don't worry, I did it for you. Okay. I need to acknowledge that a large part of why he didn't talk about women and women loving women um, is because we don't actually have very much history about them and about their relationships. Lesbianism and other kinds of queerness that focus on femmes, loving femmes, are kind of viewed as this innately dangerous thing throughout history. That perspective has led to mass erasure of that history and of those stories where things were literally erased. Like there's not that much information out there for him to have pulled from. I still find myself frustrated that I have to take this time to tell you guys that when Prower wrote a whole fucking book about this, that he couldn't have, like, put a little blurb in there that was like, hey, I know I didn't really, like, talk about femmes very much. I'm sorry about that. It's because historically there's not a lot of information. He, like, didn't even bother to do that. So the silver lining is more content for us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I actually found that and, like, the idea of those stories and that history being erased through an article called Lesbian Mythology from 1994. And so that is like another large text that I pulled from for a lot of the stories that I'm going to tell today. I know. Elle had to like be like, hey, what's your student ID? I want I need to get <laughs> access to these articles. <laughs> I, so um, on the way back from our trip, my mom and I were at the airport in Detroit and I was like, we had like a three hour layover. So I was like, I'm just going to write the episode like in the in the um, airport. And I needed the article back. Like the article had gone was gone because RJ didn't even log in correctly. So I couldn't even get it. What do you mean I didn't log in correctly? Well, you like created a new account instead of going through your like university and because this is on JSTOR and so if you guys don't know JSTOR is like an online journal an online journal article like database that people use for like um, educational research and academic research Um, so yeah I had to have my mother log in for me I was like I need the lesbian mythology journal article mom so anyway, yes, we, we do what we need. So um, I actually found out that bit of like why it was erased or why we don't have very much of it from that article. Are you ready? Are you ready for some mythology? Are you ready oh, for the stories? I am ready for the stories. How far are we into this episode? Uh, we're pretty far. I think yeah. we're almost an hour in. All right. Well, it took an hour to get here and here we go. The first mythology I want to share with you comes from Hindu culture. Shikandi is a female-to-male transgender hero. In one of her lifetimes, she is the princess Amba. Her father had three daughters, and she was the eldest. Amba was in love with Salwa, a prince of a neighboring kingdom. Amba's father invited all of the kings to her wedding except Bisham, 
When Bishama learns of this insult, he kidnaps Amba. He defeats every king that comes to rescue her, including her love Salwa. Salwa then refuses to marry Amba because he is unworthy of her due to his defeat from Bishama. Upon learning this, she goes to Bishama and demands he marry her. Bishma, I'm messing up these names. Bishma refused because she is unworthy of marriage. Because she is a woman, Amba has no recourse, no choice for revenge, and nothing but a ruined reputation yet left. Amba goes to Krishna, asking for guidance. Krishna tells her that in her next lifetime, she will have revenge against Bhishma. Buoyed by this news, Amba dies by suicide. Mm. In the next lifetime, Amba is reborn and named Shikandi, who is assigned female at birth. This shouldn't have happened. Remember, Amba ended her life because she had no recourse as a woman. She was promised the opportunity to get revenge in her next lifetime. And now, Amba is born into the same situation she fought to escape. However, King Darupada wanted to wanted an heir to the throne and decided to adopt Shikandi and raise him as a boy. Everyone believed him to be a boy and the heir to the throne. Shikandi was in love with a princess from a young from wow, from a young age and one day it came time for him to marry her. Of course, the night of the wedding, his bride finds out that he was assigned female at birth and complains to her father about this. Fearing for his safety, Shikandi goes to the forest to hide. Deeply heartbroken, rejected, and afraid, he comes upon a nature spirit that that agrees to swap genitals with him. So he is finally whole. That's my favorite part, is that the little nature spirit was like, that's okay. Do you want want mine? (laughs) I'll trade you. you. (laughs) If you can't make your own, still bought it's fine. I'm so sorry you're sad. Yeah. Shikandi goes back to his wife as a man. Eventually, he gets sent into the battle of Maharambart. Mahabharat, and he finally comes face to face with Bhishma, the man who ruined his life. Shikandi approaches him and initiates a duel for his honor. Bhishma recognizes him as the woman whose life he ruined in a previous lifetime and refuses to engage in a fight with Shikandi. In that moment, Bhishma is called out and told to face Shikandi at, with the respect that is due to a man because Shikandi is a man. He's a man. They're like, you have to fight him. He's a man. You have to respect mm. him as a man. Bhishma still refuses, and Shikandi kills him. Prower does a really good job of pointing out instances of trans women and men who become empowered when they embrace their femininity. But he really struggles with pointing out instances of AFAB people finding their own empowerment and embracing it in, in embracing masculinity. So I wanted to share this story from him. So Prower wrote about this story, this myth in his book, and I kind of fleshed out the details a little bit more. Um, But yeah, that's like the first one. That's the first little mythology that I wanted to share about um, femmes kind of becoming empowered by finding their masculinity. Hmm. What did you think? What are you doing right now? Uh, So there's a thing in my anthropology (laughs) textbook that actually relates to this. Oh, really? Uh, and it's about gender nonconforming, dual gender, and transgender people in India uh, uh-huh. and, and this deity. But I can't find it. Oh, shit. I've never heard of this deity until this. And yeah. then I was like, whoa, cool. Okay. Are you ready for the next one? See, look, you're giving me how much shit. That was a whole page. We just did a whole page. Yeah, I know, because it's storytelling. <laughs> storytelling is quicker. I know. Well, that's all we have left is storytelling. Oh, okay, much. great. <laughs> The next bit of women-centric queer magic I wanted to share comes from ancient Greece. Christine Downing wrote a wonderful scholarly article for Historical Reflections in 1994 that does a deep dive into lesbian mythology in ancient Greece. 
I read this article and used it as a source for this next section. I want to note before we get too deep into her thoughts that this is written through the lens of feminism in 1994. The feminist movement and queer identities have made huge amounts of progress, and we have a very different approach to these things now, but I wanted to note that I think her perspective and approach in this article can be a bit of that man-hating feminism that older generations like to cite as a means of dismissing feminism as a movement and feminists as people, but that doesn't make her view invalid or something we shouldn't examine. Mm, yeah. You're, he's still looking. He's just he's still searching. Looking. He's like, yeah, I didn't even I'm, hear I'm any so, of that, but I'm sure. so close to finding it. Should I wait for you? No. Okay. Ancient Greece is often pointed to slash looked at as an example of homosexuality being an accepted and expected part of the culture. Oh, yeah. Can, can I go off on a, yeah, little, I would a little bit of a pop that. culture rant? Yeah. Uh, so Assassin's Creed Odyssey mm-hmm. is perhaps the most complete recreation of ancient Greece that has ever been made. Oh, really? They literally recreate the entire Aegean Sea, uh, all the islands of Greece – Everywhere, the architecture, the, the linguistics, like everything, and and Assassin's Creed games are just killer for this, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, super gay. Like <laughs> you can just like everybody is DTF, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what. Uh, there's one character who's just like a bisexual, like not canonically a demigod, but is basically like treats himself as if he is a demigod of bisexual fucking. Um, (laughs) And and, like, there's a whole mission where you've got to like bring him oil for lube. Anyway, uh, there was a DLC uh, that came out um, that sort of like explains like this family line, the whole, idea of the Assassin's Creed games is that you enter a machine that reads your DNA and lets you experience your past, your ancestor's life, uh, essentially. But they had a bit of a problem where in order to have ancestors, there's got to be some kind of hetero thing that happened, right? So in this DLC, they like shoehorned whatever gender character you chose into a heterosexual relationship. And it was a little upsetting, right? Because the whole idea was that this was an RPG, like you could choose, right? And how, and it was so bold in the way that it, you know, portrayed like queerness in ancient Greece. Um, but then they just kind of like shoehorned in some like plot drama, this plot point where your character has to like have a kid. Um, oh, okay. And they just force them into a hetero relationship. If you chose the male character, then the character that showed up was a woman. If you played a female character, the character that showed up was a man. And then there's like a time skip cut to you have a child. Uh, and it's uh, kind of fucking annoying. Yeah. Um, that they had all this like amazingness that was sort of like destroyed for mm-hmm. a cheap plot point they could have just not done that they could have chosen <laughs> you just could not, have just not done that you could have just not done that um but they did anyway okay yeah it's my rant about pop culture <laughs> <laughs> okay of course the acceptable homosexuality and all of that is only true in the case of male-male relationships. And even then, the receiving partner slash bottom slash submissive role is only to be occupied by young men that have not yet reached full maturity. In ancient Greece, maturity is viewed as happening when a man could grow a beard. These relationships are called pederistic, pederistic relationships. Mm-hmm. A hallmark of these relationships is an expectation and goal of these sexual relationships becoming a mentorship or friendship. 
Women were not respected as humans in the way we view them now. The purpose of women in society was more as an object, not an equal. Thus, when when men wanted to have a relationship that connected on more levels than just sexually, they would have to seek those relationships from other males. Now, we might be wondering why it is necessary for them to seek these relationships with boys instead of men. In ancient Greece, sex had very specific roles for people who were participating. The only person who was allowed to enjoy sex or actively viewed sex as a pleasurable experience was the top slash active partner slash the aggressor well, the aggressor in sexual encounters. The bottom slash passive partner slash the submissive was viewed as an object that existed for the active partner to enjoy. Thus, there is an inherent devaluing slash dehumanizing view on any person who is not the active partner. Obviously, other men in Grecian society would not be interested in giving up their status to have a friendship. The young men would choose to enter these relationships because they often had some sort of affection, respect, or desire to learn from the men that pursued them. It is important to note here that the older men would court their partners and that the younger men did have a choice about whether or not they wanted to take part in these relationships. When the men would become too mature for the relationships to be viewed as acceptable, when you just get too old for the sex to be acceptable anymore, you know, um, they would often transition into friendships. In most relationships that exist between two women, there is not a natural phallus that could be used by one of the partners to take the position of the active partner. Downing notes that the insistence on phallic supremacy may betray an obsessive fear of women throughout ancient Greece. Of course, let's remember that this article is written with the lens of feminism in 1994, (laughs) but she makes some other interesting points about the lack of history slash commentary on lesbianism and queer relationships between women. Dover, a scholar, notes that when we call what we call lesbianism seems to have been a taboo subject even for comedy, which respected few taboos. This suggests that the topic may have been avoided because it inspired male anxiety. And that's like, yeah, in Mm -hmm. comedy in ancient Greece, it was like anything and everything. But they never talked about lesbianism or women having sex with each other. Yeah, of course. You know, dick jokes all the way. Right. But I mean, that's interesting that like Mm -hmm. that says a lot, right, about what's acceptable and not acceptable. Yeah. And also the erasure that happens there of like talking about all these men that are having sex with whoever. And then it's like those same views, those same views are not shared with women. And Mm -hmm. it's I think partially because women didn't matter. So they didn't really give a fuck if they were having sex with each other. Yeah. Like Like, whatever. If you remember our sex magic episode, like the differences between like the the Eros magic. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. It talks about that a lot. Yeah. 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 Uh, where women were kind of like shoehorned into doing one kind of magic because of like cultural expectations yep. with like child rearing. Mm-hmm. I found the thing in my anthropology textbook. Did you? Yeah. Right. So they're called uh, hijra. Um, and hijra uh, include people who are intersexual, transgender, or castrated males. Uh, and they represent like an alternative gender in India. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like – they don't know exactly how many. It's like 500,000 up to a million. Um, and like a lot of them are like street performers and like mm-hmm. dancers uh, and like culturally uh, important for that yeah. reason. And there's like a push to make them more active in politics. Anyway. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Worth it. <laughs> yeah, worth it. Worth it. I mean, my favorite thing about Shikandi is like the legend of Shikandi is like Hindu said – Trans rights, you know? Yeah. He was like, fuck you, kill that guy. He's a man, fight him. And he was like, no, I'm not gonna. And then Shikandi was like, well, today's your day to die then, motherfucker. Yeah. Like, everyone here has said that I have the right to kill you and I'm gonna. So, 
it's like dope, like good, good. Um, so I'm not convinced that every man is inherently threatened by women and women's ability to have their sexual needs be fulfilled by anything but some sort of phallus. But I'm not really sure that history has tried especially hard to not give us that impression. Yeah. <laughs> I find myself frustrated at the way that we look at ancient Greece as a pinnacle of homosexuality being accepted, but we just totally erased every part of woman-centric queerness that existed in it. Yeah. That's fucked up. Well, I mean, even in ancient Greece, there was like a big uh, deal about... <laughs> basically killing independent women like yeah like achilles is like some big hero because he killed a bunch of like amazons i'm gonna yeah example. talk about that and i just like we there achilles literally graphically like murdered and raped like an amazonian leader um and that's like detailed in the legends about him and i just made the choice to like not fucking talk about it because there's just like Fuck you. <laughs> you know, like you like I don't want to like give him airtime for that. But yeah, it's definitely um it's definitely a big part of that. So Downing did the incredible work of applying a queer lens to some of the goddesses' stories. Demeter, Aphrodite, and Artemis are pointed to as examples of different kinds of queer love um, deities. I think this is something else that Prower fails to emphasize in his book as well. Queerness and the queer identity take shapes in many different forms, is expressed in many different ways, and, exper- and is experienced through the different lenses at different points in one's life. To me, queerness is anything that does not fit societal norm, whatever that norm may be. Me being polyamorous is part of my queer identity and a really important part of it. But I think that maybe what makes it queer is that I'm allowed to make my own choices about partnership and I expect my partners to do the same. Like there's like that equal like equality. Right. Where like everyone, like you show up to the relationship and your expectations are the same as your partner's. And a lot of people, when you first tell them about polyamory, especially in Utah, they think like polygamy. Yeah, they think that's like like polygamy the the way Mormons did Mm -hmm. it where, but that's like hierarchical and unless there's some kind of like kink relationship going on where like consent was obtained and can be withdrawn for mm-hmm. that kind of thing um the hierarchical hierarchical like polyamorous relationships tend to get uh shitty shitty um <laughs> right where if if the power dynamics are not equalized and people feel like they are not free within the relationship to choose what they want out of the relationship and modify that over time if that mm-hmm. changes, then you get people who are trapped and it might as well just be monogamy. Yeah. So, well, and I think because I was going to say, like, I think that, like, polyamory is queer because it's a non-monogamous relationship structure. But then I was like, no, I don't think that that's queer because there's a lot of, like, um, in, like, Muslim cultures, it is absolutely um a thing and an accepted part still today for men to take multiple wives. A lot of times now they have like a primary wife and then like if there's a best friend that dies and he has a wife, they'll marry that wife to make sure that she's taken care of. Or like if the wife's sister's husband dies, there's no way for them to support themselves. So the husband will marry her to make sure that she has somewhere to live. And so there are those structures of non-monogamy that I don't think are queer, but I think like specifically for me and like my polyamory is like, I'm treated as like a whole ass adult. That's like, this is what I'm doing. Let's figure it out. And that's definitely a queer part of the relationship structure that we don't have in other forms of non-monogamy. Yeah, definitely. I would not call like what the FLDS church is doing uh, <laughs> queerness. Queer. I would, yeah, I would, not, I would call it abuse, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but so I think yeah, that's something when you're talking about this and you're talking about queerness and you're talking about like non-traditional relationship structures. I think there's room to talk about those things inside of queerness and with a queer lens. But you have to be really cognizant of like not making blanket statements about like all non-monogamy is 
queer. I that's not true. Yeah, like we learned about in in this anthropology class where I got this book. Um, mm-hmm. We learned about a uh, a where cashmere comes from, mm-hmm. uh, and these nomadic people practice polyandry. Where yeah, the, women the woman has multiple husbands to like help take care of the sons, and it doesn't matter who the biological father is they like they just raise them together Mm -hmm. it's just like oh this is both of our sons right yeah it doesn't matter which genetic material and why would i even want to know that yeah Uh, and those things are like if we think about um you know the bible where like the bible goes through and lists the family lines like that's where those things become really important versus like other indigenous tribes and like other people who maybe don't have a sacred holy text that they run their entire world around don't necessarily have those same beliefs and structures yeah, all the time and, and if you look with you know where like the canon sections of the bible were selected was like ancient rome mm-hmm. uh so they were very much into like hierarchy yep. and legacy uh and that was like matter. really important yeah. like passing things on to the next generation of your seed mattered a lot um but in you know that nomadic culture all that matters is that they're able to survive and keep herding goats yeah fuck it right yeah um okay so downing points to demeter as the goddess of motherly love and queerness that takes the form of Karen for your partner, as well as the idea of not needing a man to fulfill any needs. Um, what? Just a quick question. What do you know about Demeter's conception of Persephone and, like, that relationship? Um, so, like, there's, there's a whole lot of exploration of Greek mythology that is, like, canon and not canon. It often mm-hmm. gets mixed up in my head because I consume yeah, some right. like, garbage pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to me, Demeter is this, like... Sort of forlorn, slightly embittered mother who has given – who has been kind of forced to give her daughter away mm-hmm. uh, to not a loveless mar- marriage but kind of a one-sided marriage. Well, I think um, – I agree with that. Demeter basically in the lens that Downing looks at Demeter's myths through is basically that Demeter, her sole goal like in life was to have a daughter. That's what she wanted to have was a relationship with a daughter. Um, and she didn't want to have to have a relationship, like a romantic relationship in order to conceive her daughter. So she like went to her brother and she was like, you'll work. Let's get pregnant. Let's have a baby so that she could have a daughter. And Persephone is really viewed as like the only thing that's worthwhile in her life. So, like, being a mom and having motherly love is kind of the only thing that she has. So when she loses Persephone, which I think that Persephone and Hades are very much in love. Like, I don't think that them not wanting to be together is part of it. But there is this idea of Demeter struggling to allow her daughter to grow up because her daughter was her everything. So it's this kind of, like, very intense, kind of gross, like, controlling love. But it's also a love that, like, mothers have for their daughters and, like, Mm -hmm. kind of a fear of what happens if you lose them, if they wander away from you, if you can't be with them. Um, Downing, like, looks at Demeter as, like, these are examples of queerness because all women inherently want to be able to return to their mother's womb. And that's fucking gross. That's weird. So let's that's not some, do like, that. Let's not that, do that. That's some, like, Freud shit. And, like, it's yeah, fun to, like, <laughs> dick around with Freud and his crazy ideas every once in a while. But, but I think most of the psychology community is, like, yeah, Freud was historically important, but he was more wrong than right. Yeah. And that's – yeah. So – and this is, again, 1994. So when we talk about feminism and we're talking about, yeah. like, sexuality, there's a lot of things that we didn't have information on. It's 27 years ago. A lot of things have changed in, like, sexuality and gender identity in that time. Um, 
Okay, so that's kind of a thought about Demeter. I didn't really understand uh, Demeter in, like, the lens of her being queer, but... For me, I, I picture Demeter as, like, a shifting kind of person because Demeter is represented seasonally. Yeah. And that's we're going to talk about her ritual yeah. that's dedicated to her. So do you have you heard of the Somorphia? No, I probably like read about it doing some research once and then just dumped just that right dump, out Yeah, right. Um, so it's a festival that is held in honor of Demeter and Persephone in the late fall of each year during the time when the Grecians would plant their final crops for the year. Thesomorphia was the extremely ancient all-women right uh, preserved into late classical time in its archaic form. The ritual provided women on occa- an occasion to leave their family and home for three days and nights. Men, children, and virgins were excluded from this ritual. Sexual abstinence, specifically from penetrative sex with men, was required before and during the festival. Thesmophoria, I think it's Thesmophoria, gave the participants an opportunity to vent their anger against the men and to share with each other <laughs> the difficulties and sorrows associated with their own experiences of motherhood, confident that Demeter, the grieving mother goddess, would emphasize would empathize with their dignity and dignify their lot. <coughs> so that sounds like a pretty good festival. Yeah, and Downing kind of asserts that during this time period, because women were limited from enjoying their sex in their marriages, that they would use this time each year to like have some orgies with each other yeah. because they weren't allowed to have penetrative sex, but that didn't mean that they couldn't have lesbian sex, as my gay friend would call it. Lesbian sex. Lesbian sex. (laughs) So we've already talked about this, but you have heard of the Amazons. What do you know about the Amazons? Um, So there's a lot of debate as to whether the Amazons are just a product of mythology or if they were a real culture. Actually real. Yep. Um, The theories that they were actually real um, show that they were uh, mostly like horseback based archers, kind of like the Mongols were, mm-hmm. making them very successful warriors that would just kick anybody's ass because they had the superior tactic of uh, ar- arches and horses, yeah. uh, which is a, <laughs> great, hard to beat. a great combat combination. But at the same time, the legends certainly outgrew whatever might have been real about them. Yeah. Uh, and oftentimes, like Amazons are considered. Like dangerous, almost monstrous yep. in in many portrayals as a rejection, uh, as women who have rejected femininity yep. uh, in many ways, including like the removal of a breast uh, to make them more effective in combat. Yeah, archers. Yeah. And then there's, you know, like the DC universe, like Amazons that are just like demigods that live on their secret island and like quietly hate men <laughs> i totally yeah i totally thought that the amazons were actually in the amazon forest no. i don't know why that was a thing well because a lot of times they're depicted that way as like this like indigenous tribe from south america kind of, they're they're kind of depicted as tribal which lends support to the theory that they are like more horseback based archers because they would not wear like armor they would wear very light clothing so that they could yeah, be quick, on, quick on their horses yeah. and be really uh, agile and capable with the bow yeah so um they are a maybe mythical maybe real tribe of warrior women who were located near greece they are known for conducting life um in their tribe exclusively between women they only went outside of their tribe for procreation once a year i don't necessarily want to spend time detailing the ways the amazons were abused and dominated in greek greek mythology but it's a thing that basically just reinforces the fear grecian men had of women who could be independent from men 
Artemis is the goddess of the Amazons. Their brand of queerness is particularly fierce and very dependent on not needing anything from a man. They are viewed as this intense, powerful race. In fact, I think that maybe the best way to explain who they are, if you don't know, is to go watch Futurama's episode with them in it. Oh, so like... Snoo, snoo. Yeah, the snoo, snoo, right? Yeah. So let's let's talk about this. Yeah. Uh, so Amazon itself has been used as a derogatory term yeah. for a masculine woman or a tall or large yeah. woman, both as a way to be derogatory and as a way to fetishize. Yep, fetishize them. Um, and the Futurama episode, I know when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, yeah, snoo, snoo, man, <laughs> when I first saw that episode. Uh, but looking back at it now, I'm like definitely seeing like how this is a commentary on yeah. the fetishization of women to the point where you're like, they're going to fuck you to death, but they're like smiling and then they're afraid and then like smiling and yeah, then they're afraid. It's that or dangerous. It's th- this like yeah. mixed feeling and this conflict that men have that sort of drive them toward these myths where it's like, uh, yeah, fucking sit on my face until my head explodes. Uh, I saw that episode of The Boys. Of The Boys, yeah. <laughs> I fucking sit on my face till my head explodes and that's like attractive to them but at the same time, like Horrifying. overcoming that uh, becomes an act of heroism. Yep. Um, so Downing assessed Artemis and the Amazons um, from this lens of uncontrol of, of an uncontrollable woman being dangerous. Their sexuality viewed as this brutal but exciting thing. Downing really views the Amazons not from the matriar- matriarchal view of women, a perspective on women-led societies in which there is a singular woman in charge of all the decisions and actions that the society takes, but from the sister-led view which sees all women being regarded as equals. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make because if we look at like a matriarchal society is basically a masculine lens on something in which there has to be one person in charge instead of looking at relationships and societies being possible with everyone being reviewed as an equal. And so that's something that like the alienation of the basis of relationships always needing to be a power structure and being inherent about like power um, says a lot about people's views and like ancient Grecian views on uh, women-led relationships or women-loving women relationships because Artemis really represents this kind of queerness that doesn't have the mom and the daughter or the person who is the aggressor and the passive person, but really looks at queerness as two people who are equals that participate in a relationship together because they want to and having a society led from that perspective. So Downing really looks at that as like, Men can't even talk about this in a way because they don't understand what these relationships could look like because there's always that want for power. Yeah. And if you look at like the daughters of Artemis and like the the cult surrounding Artemis, it's mostly just women yearning for independence. Yeah. Um, And – you know, we get birthday cakes uh, from, yeah. from from that. We get birthday candle ritual that we all do mm-hmm. and make wishes. Um, but uh, also Artemis being a goddess of the hunt represents self-sustainability yeah. and independence. Yeah. And not needing people to do that for you. Yeah. Beyond that depiction of Artemis, we also have her as the virginal goddess. Downing points to her lack of male partners, proof of her queerness, and desire for only female partners. Because they wouldn't have talked about it. That was a thing we didn't discuss, women being with other women. And so if if no partner is discussed and it's Artemis and she prefers the company of women, we're going to point to her as like a lesbian, Mm -hmm. uh, a queer 
uh, deity. Um, Downing goes on to point out that though it is not written about, it is quite possible that Artemis held a very similar initiation into sexuality as her brother, Apollo, did for young men. There is written record of women taking their toys and clothes from childhood to Artemis when they became mature. We also know that these women went through initiation rites and passages without men. So Downing wants to know if this was a kind of queer ritual to show women the truth of their sexuality before they were given to their husbands to become mothers. We don't really know. Are you telling me the birthday cakes are gay? Yeah. If you've ever if you've ever had a birthday cake, you're fucking queer. You're gay. You That's did it. you did queer magic. If yeah, you had a birthday cake. Well, and there is like um Downing didn't go into this, but I have seen people talking about how Artemis view like Artemis's view of virgins was really just talking about people who didn't need men versus people who were not who were pure, who were sexually pure. And the Artemis didn't really view, like, sexual purity as being broken when sex was had between women, Mm -hmm. only as something that men can take away from them. And so that's, like, another kind of lens to put on the top of this. I, By the way, like, I think that I object to the view of this of being, like, sex is something only that, like, men take away from women. Like, I don't – I object to that. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that's, like, a good lens to put on it. But we have to understand, like, 1994 feminism and, like, lesbianism was a very different time. Yeah. So, like – yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the more uh, radical ideas were uh, either locked away or the people that had them were uh, killed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have myths such as the Maynads that are kind of a cautionary tale of what happens when society represses oh, women. Oh, love them Maynads. Plus- Rip me apart, <laughs> <Yeah>. wine mommy. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get that out in t-shirt. Rip me apart, wine mommy. Also, <laughs> May adds the original wine moms uh, refer to our alcohol magic episode. It's true. Um, also, if there's a way to orgasm, people have known about it since the dawn of time. And this is something that Downing, Prower, and I all agree on. People want to fuck. And they're going to figure out how to do that in a way that's enjoyable, whether or not history wants to record it as such. So finally, the last um, Grecian goddess we're going to talk about is Aphrodite. Aphrodite is widely known as the goddess of love, but she is also a queer goddess. She does not have a specific gender preference in partners, and her view of love is really based in constantly giving of yourself no matter the cost. Toxic, don't do that, but that is Aphrodite's thing. I found this beautiful quote from Downing that just really sums up Aphrodite's energy to me. Above all, Aphrodite reminds us of the inescapable transience of all mortal bonds, of how all love means loss, of the most difficult challenge of love is to really know that, know that from living it, and yet be ready to love again. In Aphrodite's approach to love, there's a distinct lack of that power struggle that is the trademark of ancient Grecian um, heterosexual relationships. Downing also notes that Sappho, famous for her queer poetry, was the de- was a devotee of Aphrodite. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. Sappho's work even looks at men's uh, looks at men as objects of desire instead of just wanting to be adored by them. Sappho wants to adore them. I think this kind of love is inherently queer and really shows that queerness exists even inside of opposite sex attraction. So, like, the way that Sappho wrote and, like, the poetry that she wrote about men, about desiring men as that active pursuer, as the one that is the aggressor, that was not something that was written about in Grecian terms yeah. and for a long time was never allowed. And and you could make an argument that anything that challenges gender and sexuality norms and standards that is queer. exist – 
is is queer, even if it is a heterosexual challenge mm-hmm. uh, to that's where I think polyamory the, fits the challenges. in that. And, yeah. and some like forms of kink. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, there's there's also like deep connections to identity. So like queer the act versus like queer the identity. Yeah. Uh, versus like uh, queer the history and queer the magic. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's all uh, very broad while being very specific. I know it is. And I think like for people who are like heterosexual, cisgendered people that are listening to this that feel really confused, like here's the thing. It's okay. You don't have to understand like the ins and outs of like how a woman could feel like differently attracted to a man versus a woman or how they could feel similarly attracted to a man versus a woman or what that might mean for them. You don't have to worry about it. You can just be like, cool. That's queer. Like, that's it. That's all you need to do. Um, And the more you talk to people, the more you have these conversations about, like, what is queer and how queer people define their queerness, you'll understand, like, what queer is. So I want to encourage people to have those conversations, but do not bother your queer people with all these fucking questions. (laughs) It's going to be okay. Go to a community college and take, like, one gender studies Yeah, and, like, there's... If you really, really need to know. honestly, this article... I loved it. Like the journal article that Christine Downing wrote was fucking great. I mean, did I like, did it take two sittings to read it because it was 31 pages of academia? Yeah. Was I like showing RJ all the bullshit where I was like, okay, this is like totally man hating and I don't agree with that. Absolutely. There's one, um, there's one instance in her article where she says pre her story. And I showed it to my mom and just rolled my eyes because I was like, I think it's a bit much. I get it. That's a few feminism waves <laughs> back then. Yeah, we're like a little bit beyond that. But I understand, you know, kind of the purpose or like the thing of that. I just love that um, Downing really like looks at Sappho's attraction to men and says like even the way that she's attracted to these heterosexual relationships is queer. And I think that's an important thing to like understand and take away from this. so deftly puts it in his book let's board the ship and go to our next destination (laughs) Egypt (laughs) he does he does that every time at the end of a fucking let's board the ship and go to the next destination Egypt (laughs) Egypt yes (laughs) we are boarding the ship and heading to the next destination okay So we know I'm obsessed with Egypt. I will talk about it any chance I can get. I was fucking stoked about this one. This is one that I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Prower, that you just didn't fucking mention this at all? Um, What do you know about the process of becoming a pharaoh? Like, who was allowed to be pharaoh? What a pharaoh did? Any of that. See, I'm kind of lacking on my Egyptology. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know too much. I should have. I I should have played Assassin's Creed Origins more. Um, yeah. Then you would. <laughs> then known. I would have had at least a basic knowledge. I played it a little bit though, and it's really fun. But it's like yeah. Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It's the game that came out before it, and it's ancient Egypt. I would probably enjoy it. So, honestly. Yeah. Assassin's Creed Origins, and then they did Odyssey, ancient Greece, and then they did Valhalla, which is Viking Ooh, time. And, and Valhalla, Valhalla is really Valhalla good. Valhalla is right? really fucking good. It's really good. Okay, so I'll just give like kind of a brief thing because I think that we like 
and we have done kind of a disjustice or like a, a dis uh, disservice to like ancient Egyptian culture and stuff because we're like pharaohs, they were mummies, woo! <laughs> like that's kind of it. Yeah. Like we're like yeah, that's weird as fuck that they mummified people. Okay, so um, pharaohs were. Um, they were like kings in other cultures. So they were often like found in different like lines of the family. There was non-monogamy that existed in ancient Egypt and it was most often the king that would be married to several different women. The women would be like primary wife and then secondary wives. Primary wife would be the first person that they wanted to have a heir to the throne with. So it would be like the pharaoh would copulate with the first wife. If they had a boy, that would be the heir to the throne. Um, Pretty much throughout ancient Egyptian history, pharaohs were men. We, of course, have like Cleopatra and a couple of other examples. I'm going to talk about another example of a woman that was a pharaoh. Um, and there were different dynasties. So like in like Chinese dynasties and like yeah. that, it was like a very similar system. So that's just kind of like a brief overview. Um, what do you know? Oh, something that is important that I'm going to talk about in a minute is that pharaohs were viewed as the guarders or the guardians of Ma'at which is the – it's basically the order of the world that exists because the pharaohs enforce it to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like kind of a divine power structure that exists. And the pharaohs were believed to be assigned by divinity in order to obtain and like hold ma'at for their people. Okay. What do you know about temples and hieroglyphs? Like probably just what we've talked about on the show, just right? Just the dumb shit they teach you in elementary school where it's like, What do you know? Yeah, tell me. Translate yeah. these hieroglyphs. What does the hawk mean? This is a it's pyramid. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I, I'm definitely lacking in the Egyptology department. Okay. So temples, um, we're going to actually like talk about all of this a little bit more in depth. I have a couple of paragraphs about it. But temples were built by the different pharaohs in different um, – Um, rules in order to basically symbolize this is what I did. Um, And the pharaoh's rules were like inexorably tied to the divinity that existed. So if like one of them worshipped Amun, who was like God, that's like the main God, um, then they would, you know, uh, erect temples to him. So Karnak Temple is a temple to Amun, who is like the main God. Um. Yeah. So the other thing about um, hieroglyphs is that they cover fucking everything in ancient Egypt. Everything that exists in ancient Egypt has a fucking hieroglyph on it, like all over it. Language is cool. Um, It's super cool. But actually, that was used as a way for the pharaohs to disseminate divine knowledge to their people. Mm. And they would say, oh. I saw the sign. (laughs) Yeah. And I wrote it it on this wall. (laughs) So they had that as a way to disseminate basically divine orders from the gods to the people. So that way they could be like, you don't think I'm Pharaoh? It fucking says I am on the temple I built, bitches. (laughs) Literally, that's what it was. So – Pharaoh was the position of king in ancient Egyptian societies. As with most forms of government, the pharaoh's hold on his position was often tenuous. Pharaohs were viewed as inherently divine and and working closely with the gods. An enormous part of Egyptian history is written on the walls of various temples and the temples that were erected by pharaohs with relationships and respect for the various gods. Pharaohs were saddled with the responsibility of maintaining ma'at, or the peace and harmony that comes from abiding by and respecting traditions. When we were in Egypt, I was actually shocked to see how much of the buildings were covered in hieroglyphs. I remember our Egyptologist giving us a tour of one of the temples and reading a set of hieroglyphs to us. 
He told us it said, God has deemed, I can't remember the Pharaoh's name, but the Pharaoh's name, Pharaoh of Egypt. And he told us that this is how they would disseminate orders. Basically, if it was carved into the buildings, it was true. Even if no one said it but the Pharaoh. Like, just didn't fucking matter. The Pharaoh said to write it. I wrote it. That's it. It was believed in ancient Egypt that the Pharaohs would come back into their bodies after death, but only if their spirit could find their body, which people mummified after the ruler's deaths. Enslaved people and servants of the rulers would obey these rules because it was believed that they would be allowed to reincarnate with the, uh, with their rulers as their servants. So um, inside of the burial chambers in like the Valley of the Kings and inside the um, pyramids, there's like giant murals all over the walls with all of these little stars like all over. It's like blue mm. paint with like stars. And we were talking about it and he said each star represents one of the servants of the pharaohs. And it is believed that they're represented there so when the pharaoh comes back to his body and awakens – the rest of his servants can come back. Um, they would also steal mummies and destroy them of other pharaohs so that way they couldn't come back. <laughs> that was a thing. That's absolutely a thing. The fucking mummy wars. Yes. They would – and they would like – we're going to talk about it when we talk about um, the person we're getting there. But yes, that was the thing that they would do. They would destroy their burial temples. They would steal their mummies. They would do all sorts of things, especially if they didn't like the you pharaoh. got to make that shit a fortress. Yeah. Well, and that's like they built these giant fucking pyramids where everybody knew how to find them. Like, where are all of the the gold and the riches and jewels and everything? Under the giant fucking pyramid in the middle of the desert. Like, where are you going to go to steal the shit? There, you know? So that was part of it. Um, The pyramids were built as giant tombs to pharaohs because constructing great buildings and structures was viewed as a mark of a successful ruler. However, the pyramids were not hidden and were absolutely bursting at the seams with gold, essential oils, gems, fabrics, and all sorts of other very expensive things. Fun fact, essential oils were discovered and made in Egypt first. And when they found the the burial tombs, like in the 1900s, they could still smell the essential oils. Like, in there. Like, that's how concentrated it was that it lasted thousands of years. Dude, fucking Pharaoh on the doTERRA MLA. It's it's a pyramid scheme, right? Yeah, right. He knows it's a pyramid scheme. (laughs) He just had to to put in his monthly order. Hey, Huns, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) know. See, listen, right? You find three servants. You find three servants, and then you'll be getting resurrection on your upline. Hey, um, it's on the temple wall. The lavender is five. Yeah, whatever. So that's where essential oils came from. It's actually super cool. We have essential oils at our home from from Egypt that I bought for the store, like when we were there. Oh, the thing, yeah, they ugh, smell so good. Um, it didn't take long for people to start grave robbing and plundering the pyramids. The pharaoh Thutmose the first decided to do something about that. He wanted to protect his body, his jewels, and his livelihood in the next lifetime. So he built the Valley of the Kings. Are you Go like this. As to describe for the <laughs> listeners, I've been playing with like some of Crazy Aaron's thinking putty and it got hooked onto my use. bracelet. <laughs> I can't get it off. Okay, we need to just like put it in the freezer. Pull the. I'm trying to like, because it sticks to itself. Right. right. Let's make a ball. We're recording this. You know what? This <laughs> I'll put it in the freezer and get it off later. That's what continue. I'm Please continue. Please <laughs> continue. Okay. Um, we have crazy errands thinking putty by the droves in our office because I play with it while I read um, because my body gets bored. <laughs> so I have to have something to do. Okay. Uh, the Pharaoh. All right. Is that where you want me to go? The Pharaoh Thutmose the first. 
decided to do something about that. He wanted to protect his body, his jewels, and his livelihood in the next lifetime, so he built the Valley of the Kings. So um, have, do you know what the Valley of the Kings is? Isn't that where the pyramids are? No. The pyramids are outside of Cairo. The Valley of the Kings is what came after the pyramids. And the Valley of the Kings is just in the middle of the desert um, that's, like, really uninhabitable. So that way people wouldn't go there. You you can't just, like, fuck it. But then, wait a minute. Then when you resurrect, you're trapped in the middle of the godless, hopeless desert. Well, so how do you think – so he wanted to keep it a secret, right? Because he didn't want anyone to steal their shit. Yeah. But he still – he had to build it, right? Yeah. So do you think he built it? Uh, no, I think he entombed all of his slaves with him. So this – he actually built the Valley of the Kings to be a burial ground for future kings as well. So it wasn't just his burial. It was for every other king mm. that came after him. And he had servants that he like moved out close-ish to the Valley of the Kings, and he would blindfold them, and he would, like, rope them together so they could be led blindfolded, and they would, like, lead them around in different, like, paths and, like, circles around the desert for, like, five miles before he would take them to the Valley of the Kings, when really they literally lived two blocks away from it, and they just couldn't see it. (laughs) So, like, that was what he did in order to protect, like, where the Valley of the Kings was. And the Valley of the Kings, um, so, like, King Tut... Um, The only reason King Tut – because King Tut was only king for like three years. He died when he was like 19 years old. Yeah, because he had a bad tooth. He had a bad tooth um, and people didn't want him to be king and he was like a very minor king. But, you know, we have like his death mask and all of his jewels and everything. Like I went and saw all of his burial stuff when I was in Egypt and it's like stunning. And they're like, oh, this is like one of the smallest chambers. But there were two burial chambers above him that they found and plundered and took everything out of. So King Tut's was protected. That's the only reason we have it is because they found the other two and didn't think it was going to be Misdirection. His. Yeah. So that's, that's right. <laughs> hey, King Tut, you survived the grave robbers yeah. only to get grave robbed by the white people actually, much later. <laughs> right. When I went to Egypt, actually, I got to see King Tut's mummy. He's actually still in his um, tomb and they have him like protected. And it was like a very like spiritual, really good experience. Dude, how corny would it be to be King Tut and you're like the only like uh, pharaoh that comes back <laughs> and, and you're like, trapped yeah, in- it's me, guys. Anyway, uh, so like I was hoping we could, you know, like play some board games. Uh, do you have Uno? Any- anybody? <laughs> I'm literally king of everything. I'm the only one. I was, I'm 19. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I, was, I only got three years of experience here. My, I'm the only one. Right. So um yeah so that's like that's what the Valley of the Kings was for and it was like made to be that and several people were already plundered long before that. Um but Thutmose the 1st wanted to build this um so that way he would be protected and pharaohs in the future would be protected so they could come back. Um it was built as a sacred valley with tombs for the pharaohs coming after him. Thutmose 1 and his wife also brought into the world the intense charming successful determined pharaoh hatship suit or Ma'at Hot ship suit. And um, my Egyptologist told us to say it like hot chicken soup. Hot ship suit rose to power after her brother, whom she was married to, passed away, and their son, who was only two, was not old enough to take the throne. Women in Egyptian society were highly regarded. They were allowed to own property, make legal decisions, and were considered citizens. I don't know if that's highly regarded as much as, like, the regular bare minimum They're literally just humans. Yeah. 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 However, Hatshepsut was the only the fourth woman to become pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Maybe. Like, there's a lot of um, questions about whether 
or not there were women before her, what that would mean, all of that stuff. There are just a lot of questions there. Um, some say that she's the first woman to ever be a pharaoh. Some say that she's the fourth. It just kind of depends where you're looking. But either way, it was incredibly rare for a woman to be a pharaoh. Um, some historians believe her to be the first pharaoh with real pharaoh with real power and a long reign. She is, however, the first woman pharaoh to depict herself as a man in her monuments. Mm. Mm-hmm. As with most women who try to take the positions of power, Hatshepsut was looked at as many things, including conniving and awful. Hatshepsut was only was the only offspring from her father and his primary wife. Thutmose one conceived his son. Thutmose t- two. Second, with his junior, I call him junior, with his secondary wife. Junior and Hatshepsut were married to each other and had their sons, Thutmose the third. About two years after their son's birth, Junior died, leaving his toddler son as the ruler because that was that's the thing. Of course. Hatshepsut thought that was ridiculous. And because yeah. she was raised by her father and as a ruler, she decided to step in as regent for her son until he was old enough to be pharaoh. Hatshepsut did not waste a moment of her rule. She ruled for 22 years, which is a long damn time. That is a pretty long time. So her son was 24 by the time he took over, okay. which is an appropriate age. He was probably like eight, like all growing up. He's like, stop treating me like a kid, mom. I was chosen by the gods. Actually, um, so one of the things that's really interesting about Hatshepsut is that she has one of the most beautiful uh, funeral monuments that has actually had to be rebuilt. Um, and it's near the Valley of the Kings. And it's because everything that they could find with her when she died, her son destroyed after the fact. But he didn't do that until 12 years after her Take death. Take that, mom! Well, it was, he waited. It was basically like they had told him that he wasn't powerful enough, that he wasn't strong enough, and he allowed his mother to rule for him. So they had told him that he needed to erase her from history in order Damn. to be respected. And so when we, when they found stuff, they actually found her her burial monument, like her temple, first. And then they were like, who the fuck is this woman that has a fake beard, like, in her statues? Because she made them put a, like, a string, almost, um, signifying holding her beard on. So explaining, like, this is a fake beard on me. And it would be, like, the pharaoh's beard. Do you know the pharaoh beard? Yeah, the, the little security yeah. part, yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, so they would do that basically. So um, they found her after the fact, um, but there wasn't any indication during her rule that her son was, like, ready to take over and she wouldn't let him. Of course, like, historical men look at it as, like, of course she was conniving and she stole his rule from him and da da When you play the game of pyramids, you win and then you die and then you live again. Yeah, that's that's the Pharaoh way. Um, so she ruled for 22 years and built two and a half obelisks. Do you know what obelisks are? Yeah. Okay. Obelisk, the tormentor, the Yu-Gi-Oh card. Do you want to know why there's a half an obelisk? Uh, why is there half an obelisk? Because she tried to – so she, they, the way that they would do them, and I've, I've gone to the quarry where they have her obelisk, is that they would carve them out of the ground and they would do all the inscriptions while they were carving it out. And she tried to build the world's biggest obelisk <laughs> that was like – Two tons. We tower of Babel in this shit. Yes. No, for real. Two tons. Two tons of marble. And these, we don't have, there's no cranes. They used elephants and people. That's how they like moved the obelisks around. But when they were carving it out, the base of it cracked. So it wouldn't stand. And so they abandoned it. 
<laughs> so it's just there. She's probably so mad. <laughs> right. Um, so she built two and a half obelisks, a memorial temple for herself, which is famous and gorgeous, monuments at the Karnak Temple, Karnak's Red Chapel, and so many other things. She is one of the most prolific builders of ancient Egypt. In her time as pharaoh, she sent her son to train with the army, and he spent his time as co-regent gallivanting around, claiming land, and killing people. And he loved it. That's what he wanted to do was, like, be a soldier. Mom, quit treating me like a kid and let me go murder people. And she's like, cool, go fucking go fight your battles, dude. So, I mean, part of that is that she worked really hard to train him to be ready to be a pharaoh. Like, he was a very good pharaoh. Um, At this time in ancient Egyptian history, we we didn't have a lot of, like, really strong um, dynasties. The Egyptian people were kind of failing. Her father finding and building the Valley of the Kings was a big deal for the pharaohs, but nothing had really been done for the people. Yeah, I'm sure no that like bankrupted them pretty hard. Um, well, she I it's bankrupt is not really a concern when you don't pay the people who work for you because these are enslaved people. Right. And so but at the same time, there's got to be like food and resources that are being spent on that that are not going to the people, the actual people. Um, I think so. And like they had enough resources for her to build several different other things. And it's like everything during her rule was viewed as really prosperous because the fact that she could build all of these things uh, indicated she... that they like that they had enough to feed the people and everything. Um, and she really is like really like regarded now as like, wow, she was like a really successful ruler. There's no indication that her son was upset about her role or that there was a struggle for power. After Hatshepsut stepped fully into her role as pharaoh, new statues that were erected of her um, were masculine and old statues were carved over to be masculine. Some of them were carved over like in her feminine form to build the beard into them. Her sphinxes, she is depicted wearing a beard that is obviously strapped on. At one point, the Oracle of Amun proclaimed that it was the will of Amun, the highest god, that Hatshepsut be pharaoh. She had this inscription put on her temples. Welcome, my sweet daughter, my favorite, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Matka'ur, Hatshepsut, thou art the pharaoh taking possession of the two lands. Notice that the, in the inscription, it acknowledges both the feminine and masculine names that she uses, Hatshepsut and Ma'atkar. This is not the only instance of her gender-bending language that she uses. One of her statues she carved, His, majest, His Majesty Herself, Hatshepsut. Historians have a hard time parsing out the details of her gender identity. There just weren't these combinations of words that were typical. Ha, ha, get fucked, historians. <laughs> right. So, but they were so accurate to who she was that they wanted that she wanted them engraved on temples and statues. Like she used both the masculine and feminine. She used her masculine and feminine name. And so obviously there's a gender non-conforming like aspect to this. Mm-hmm. I'm really disappointed that Prower didn't even try to bring this up in his book. I know it isn't exactly magical, but everything in ancient Egyptian life was so tightly connected to spirituality religion, the gods, the world, etc., that it seems like he could have made some space for her. Wait a minute. Wait. Hold on. You mean not everything from Egypt is magic? Um, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, shit. Somebody tell Aleister Crowley. I know. Somebody tell the Order of the Golden Dawn not everything in Egypt is magic. Well, and I think, like, the one thing I wanted to point out or, like, really, like, Point two is Ma'at, which is the the order given to you by the gods. It's the divinity saying this is how things should go. And her name is Ma'at Kar, which is like the truth of God is inside of me. That's her masculine name. Mm. So it just is like 
it is magical and it's fucking important. And we should talk about this as like a woman who finds empowerment through masculinity. And I'm sure some of that had to do with wanting people to take her seriously in that role. But also some of it, she was like, fuck it. Her her royal majesty himself or his royal majesty herself. Like, you know, there it just is. It's a thing. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Are you ready? Are you bored? I am ready. It's a long episode. This is a long, this is longer than Oneromancy. I, yeah, <laughs> I had a lot to say. <laughs> I was worried it wasn't going to be long enough and I was cutting, I was like, no, we don't need to go too deep into this. But I have one more thing. I have three pages left. I have like two and a half pages left. So it's not that much more. You ready? There's still two and a half pages? Yeah. I thought we were done. No. Okay. I. What haven't I talked about yet? No, there's literally so much. RJ looks like his brain is falling out of his ears right now. <laughs> We've been recording for like three hours. <laughs> no wonder you got some silly putty stuck to your yeah. fucking bracelet. Okay. And now I've saved the most terrible, the most feared. The most terrible. The most worstest, the most scariest worstest. deity of all for very oh, last. Yeah. yeah. I want to introduce you to La Santa Morte. I thought you were going to do this in a completely separate episode, no. actually. Okay. No. The Feminine Holy Death. What do you know about Santa Morte? Only what you've told me. You know, you kind of introduced me to this. Uh, it's got a component of voodoo, a component of Santeria. Uh, mostly I don't look into those things because they're closed. Um, mm-hmm. But from what I understand, Santa Morte is the patron saint of those who are uh, outcasted, such as uh, criminals, uh, those who don't fit the mold, and that includes uh, queer people. Uh, so Santa Morte is often... Um, called upon for like smugglers, drug dealers, that kind of thing uh, as a protector deity for them. Okay. Um, So something that I found to be really interesting, like in my research is actually that Santa Morte in this, in like modern day, like the way that we talk about it now is actually not uh, worshipped as part or exclusively as part of Santeria and Voodoo. She is absolutely worshipped as people who um, say that they are Catholic that they're like, yep, I'm Catholic and I and I worship Santa Morte. I mean, wasn't that kind of the like part of Santeria though, where it was like, we're gonna do our like magic and stuff, but we're gonna pretend it's Catholic. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'll dig into that in like the this little bit, but yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna set the stage for telling you a story from my past of a run-in that I've had with Santa Morte. Oh boy. When I was about 24 years old, I was studying voodoo, and I was going on a trip to Mexico with a friend. When I was talking about it with my mambo, who was my, like, magic uh, mother, she asked me if I would bring her back a Santa Morte statue. And I had, like, no idea. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. These statues are activated and used as a kind of embodiment for Santa Morte. So I go to Mexico. I go to this little island, Isla Mujeres, and I start asking around at all the shops. I definitely had on symbols of my voodoo practice that are common and well-known in Mexico because of Santeria and because of other things. There's a lot of, like, overlap in different symbols that people would use to mm-hmm. identify themselves as a practitioner. And they are symbols that unless you are also a practitioner, you would not know are that or unless you've been, like, taught what those symbols are. Yeah. Um, each shop I went into shook their heads. The final shop I asked about it in, the owner looked at me with side eyes and said, why? I panicked and was like, oh, 
my friend just wanted the statue because I knew she knew I was coming to Mexico. So I just told her I would look. And then I left. I was like, okay, I'm good. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It just was so weird. Every single time I went into a shop looking for one, asking for one of those statues. And like in um, Mexico, statuary is a really big thing for like tourists. Like they have statuary for purchase, like a -hmm. bunch of it. And I couldn't find a Santa Morte anywhere. Like anywhere, and she basically is just like the Virgin Mary as a skeleton. Yeah, well, that's what I told. It, I doesn't would... it literally translate to Saint Death? So it doesn't translate to Saint Death. That's like a misconception. It's the Holy Death is what it means. Ah. And sometimes she is referred to as Santissima Morte, and that is the most holy death. So it's not the Saint of Death. It just is the Holy Death, and it's viewed as like people think of her as the one that greeted Jesus when he died. That she was the one that was there for him when he came to the other side, and she like walked with him. So it's like a very similar idea to like a Grim Reaper or on the River Styx and like that kind of stuff. Like a, like Charon, mm-hmm, like the the fairy person, yeah. but it's feminine. Um, and I think it's feminine specifically, like, because this is called uh, folk Catholicism is, like, technically the term that they use of people who study and worship San- Santa Morte. Um, okay. So, um, later I was watching a show called Border Security, which is, like, one of my favorite things. Um, that's about border agents patrolling inside of airports. Like, when people come through customs, they, like, go through their bags and stuff. That's when I understood the reason I was being turned away and why the shopkeeper was so suspicious. If border agents pulled from uh, pulled someone someone with a bag for a search and they found a Santa Morte statue, the agents knew that that person was smuggling drugs. Lois Ann Lawrenson notes the Drug Enforcement Agency, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, the Mexican government, and the Mexican military all actively oppose the worship of Santa Morte. That is the irony of like certain protective symbols is mm-hmm. that if you're wearing the protective symbol, people know that you're trying to be they protected do and, from yeah, that and, and they like, know information about you. Well, and um, something else that happened with this is like in the 1990s, um, the Catholic Church in Mexico like came out and spoke against um, Santa Morte. And so it was like everyone in these like government, like the Pope, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the president of Mexico, everyone was like, this is bad. And then everyone oh. was like, ooh, they said it was bad. They said it was bad. That means it's cool. Right. All the well, no. boring people said it was bad. Every, it must yeah, then be everyone's cool. Well, no, then everyone is like, oh, this is always used as a symbol for smuggling drugs. There's no reason anyone would want anything to do with her unless they're smuggling drugs. Like, that's what was kind of decided about it. Santa Morte is an import from the Spanish invasion of indigenous Mexican people. Catholics have had depiction of death as um, iconography since the 13th century when the Black Plague plague ravaged Europe. You know, the memento mori and everything. Mm -hmm. As Catholicism clashed with indigenous cultures and spiritualities, we started seeing this weird combination of Catholic saints who had magical powers beyond what a saint could really do. This tradition is often referred to as folk Catholicism, which differs from Santeria pretty much solely on the location because Santeria is mostly Cuban. This is widely accepted as part of the cost of stealing land and culture until about the 1990s. Mm. So people were like, Fuck it. We have to let the people have their little like death statue because we took everything else from them. And they 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 say that they believe in our God. So it's good enough. Right. I mean, that's been like the the strategy since the beginning. Yeah. Of, like that's how that's, we've maintained. That's, that's how cultures. That's have kept. Chris, Christian colonization. Like 101. Yeah. Allow them to have this and then slowly take their culture away more and more. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then eventually, eventually you get to the point where you can demonize it. and No one will question you. Yeah. 
In the late 80s and early 90s, um, we saw a rise in the cartel crime in Mexico because of America's focus on breaking up the Colombian cartel's routes through the Caribbean. This gave Mexican cartels the opportunity to go from drug mules to drug dealers. Are you telling me the war on drugs made things worse? Yes. This is when Santa Morte really rose in popularity. The life of a cartel member is dangerous and filled with death. Who's better to accompany you on your dangerous journeys than death herself? Something else that really made Santa Morte accessible for people is that they could pray to her in the same way that they prayed to the Virgin Mary as they were growing up. As well, many folk Catholic people see Santa Morte as a version of the Virgin Mary. Of course, the government and the church had to step in to curtail and discourage the worship of Santa Morte. The Vatican and the Pope of the Church in Mexico have all come out and said that this is blasphemy to worship her, that any person who worships the Holy Death has already left the Catholic Church. However, many devotees look at Santa Morte as her as another saint, another part of their religion. John Nova Lomax explains that she is just like Our Lady of Guadalupe. Centuries ago, mestizos and Mexican Indians felt the church was not meeting their needs, and a miracle arrived just in time. Our Lady of Guadalupe. Here was a representation of the Virgin Mary that looked like them. And now here comes La Flaca, which is another name for Santa Morte. In today's Mexico, death has more power than life. To have hope within all this despair, you must implore death itself to give you what you want. I'm wondering what you think about that. That's metal as shit. That's fucking, yeah. It's fucking metal. So one of the documentaries that I watched, because I think I watched like four documentaries on her, um, people were talking about how in the Mexican prisons, people used to get giant um, tattoos of the Virgin Mary on their back. and. Because people wouldn't stab the Virgin Mary. So mm. if you had her looking at them, they respected her so much that they wouldn't attack you. Interesting. And then nobody gave a fuck about the Virgin Mary because all sorts of religion and, like, the government and everything was failing people. So then they turned to Santa Morte and Uh-oh. they got her. And you're not going to fucking stab death or yeah, she'll get you. So, like, fucking, like, I see a guy with the ink mat, like, with a Virgin Mary tattoo on his back showing up at Ink Master. He's like, yeah, I kind of want to make this one a skeleton. <laughs> Uh, I need to switch this to skeleton real quick. (laughs) Skeleton mode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So that was like why it became such a big thing in Mexican prisons is because people knew that like they wouldn't respect the Virgin Mary, but they would respect death. So it's cool. Um, What do you like? Does it seem odd that the people who exist in such like precarious ways in life um, and positions, do you think it's weird that they like? hold space for her and welcome her death itself? Of course not. In fact, that's the natural circumstance for any of these things. Uh, if you recall, most of our most of our historical episodes have to do with, especially with like mediumship, have mm-hmm. to do with the obsession with death that came after like World War One and World War Two, and like the, the hyper-violence that tends to get overlooked in mm-hmm. the in post-war America. Uh, like a lot of the those noir movies about people who were super violent, untrustworthy, were like people who were psychologically traumatized by the war. Yeah. So obviously there was this like obsession with uh, death. And then you have the Catholic Church, uh, which has its philosophies on death. Yeah. Um, well, because death is viewed as the ultimate enemy of Catholicism and Christianity, right? Because eternal life, that's what Jesus means, is eternal no, life. So death is not the enemy. 
Death is one of God's angels. Okay. No, death is not at all demonic. Well, that's what, in my research, that's kind of the lens that a lot of people, one of the popes, so I was like watching an interview. Um, I think it was like a documentary that CNN had done. And the Mexican pope literally sat in a chair and he was like, to worship death is to not be a Catholic because that is so far against anything that we believe in. So that's where I got that from is like, that's what the pope said. And, and you know what? We have to recognize that religion is a fluid thing. There is mm-hmm. the, this historian I follow on TikTok, and he's actually a historian for the Mormon Church, but he's really good at being objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and he points out that, uh, well, yes, you might be correct in saying historically something like an eternal hell where you are punished forever doesn't exist in a historical Bible. But at a certain point, people started believing that and that belief became valid. So it doesn't matter if it Mm -hmm. was in a a Bible written in ancient Greek. People started believing it then and it got added. Yeah. That's what matters. Uh, So while while you have that, you know, from the Mexican Pope, you also have this tradition of the memento mori of, remember, you too shall die. And you you have like plays like every man in which death is – God's most trusted servant sent Mm -hmm. to collect people and bring them forth to God. And I think that that's like an important, I think, distinction just in how people view death, right? Um, I have – so I have um, a death card skeleton on my thigh, like a tattoo of it, um, that says I do not fear in Italian because it was like one of my first tarot decks and it was an Italian tarot deck. And that felt like a really important lesson that I learned of like when you fear death, when you walk away from that change, it just gets harder. But if you allow it to be your friend, if you allow it to be this thing that you understand and love and that you know you will meet someday things get a lot less scary but like if you look at people who are um praying on their deathbeds that are asking for pardons and stuff as they're dying those are people who are like quintessentially afraid of death and it leads a lot it leaves a lot of questions about who they were when they were alive and like what they got and that's what they got from that that's kind of the idea with Santa Morte. Um, Lorenzen finds that similar to a vaccine, Santissima Morte injects just enough death to ward away its coming, which mm. I thought was beautiful and very poignant. Um, there's something that is so opposite to religion in this view of Santa Morte. Catholicism views death as the biggest enemy, as the thing we must all desperately avoid. To die the true death is to not have Jesus with you. I have found in my own life that giving in to the fear of death, confronting it head on, has made the rest of life much easier. I'm unafraid of death, of change, of what comes next. I know what it is to die spiritually again and again. And I think to be a a devotee of Santa Morte is to know that it is better to befriend and love death than it is to have her be a stranger. Beyond this, many of her devotees simply have nothing left. I recently met an indigenous healer from Mexico while I was working on my research for this episode. When she was asked about Santa Morte, her eyes got really big and she said, she came to me once. She is powerful, but she takes just as much as she gives. Santa Morte is not found by accident, and she is not worshipped until there's no other option. In the documentaries I watched about her, devotees were asked why they love her, why they worship her, and many of them said, she got my dad out of jail. She works miracles. She works. There's this deep love and reverence for the holy death that turns no one away, the death that has space for police officers and sex workers, queers, and the daughters of the cartel. I think the biggest question that Queer Magic brought me is why the only female deity he wanted to bring up, who was a deity of the queer people, is also the deity of the cartel, the criminals, and the sex workers, and the ones that they worship. 
The more I grapple with this question, the more it brings up my own beliefs about criminals. And it's really uncomfortable for me to examine, to be honest. On one hand, I think it's abhorrent to look at queers and criminals as the same class. One group of people is outcasted and thrown away because of who they love and how they prefer to have sex. The other group of people live a life separate from society because they have found themselves unable to abide by the rules of society. And most often they bring harm to society by their inability to abide by the rules. However, the more I started looking at my own perspective of criminals, the more I started thinking about how the immigrants in Mexico making hurried and dangerous dangerous crossings into America for a shot at living. We're no longer at the point in immigration where we can perceive coming to America as a hope for a better life. People who are willing to risk their lives to come into America, into this political climate, are desperate enough to find a way to survive. I'm aware that many criminals in Mexico that worship Santa Morte are criminals because they're just trying to survive, because they had to sell drugs, because they tried to get into America, because they had to do things and they didn't have another choice. I guess I just want to point out how complex these issues are and how complex our feelings can be. In my research, I came across this thought about her devotees. She is associated with those living precarious lives and or engaged in dangerous undertakings. Being queer is dangerous. None of us come out unscathed. I started this episode talking about some of the simple truths of the queer experience, one of which is that trauma is an inherent and almost necessary part of the queer experience, at least for now, at least until we change it. How would we not find the bony lady? How could we stay away from someone who lives in the darkness and brings light to it? All in all, queer magic left me understanding that we have a long way to go and a whole lot of erasure to work on. I've been explaining this research to a few people over the last couple of weeks, and I had several people express that they didn't really view the lack of feminine representation in this book to be an issue, because so much of magic is feminine, which is a fair point, but so much of queerness is a battle against feminism, an act to an attempt to erase messy and complex reflections and expressions of gender and sexuality and identity and preference. Hold on. Uh, did you say that it's an attempt to erase feminism or or did you mean erase the feminine? Erase the feminine. Oh, okay. I was writing this very late on the plane. <laughs> yeah, I'm just just checking because I was like, nah, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying gonna... not to. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just left feeling disappointed that I felt I had to do so much groundwork to make up for the obvious flaws in Thomas Prower's book. I'm also extremely grateful for his knowledge, research, love, and commitment to Santa Morte. I would have never moved beyond my perception of Santa Morte being only for criminals and undesirables if it weren't for him and his work to bring her to light. And that's, I don't know, kind of what I'm left with on this book and this episode. Well, I mean, it's totally okay to, like, take a look at what he wrote and then, like, critically analyze the problems with it while appreciating the good parts of it. Yeah. Because things are complex and we should look at them in a complex way. That's, like, the whole point of, like, critical theory as a practice. Right, exactly. Um, So, uh, yeah, I... And, you know, a lot of people these days have a really hard time with that, you know, with like cancel culture being a life sentence sometimes because you said the wrong thing or you didn't say something when you needed to. Mm -hmm. Uh, When at the same time, like critical theory, hopefully it gives gives people um, the ability to present present something something better in the future and to fill in those gaps and rewrite the errors as we move forward. in the future. Uh, I'm sure he did a, a fantabulous job. I don't know about the narrator. Um, <laughs> I kind of want to have a conversation with him and be like, look, what were you thinking? Um, or I at think least that, see if he had a voice director or something. I feel um, like Thomas Brower actually should like get someone else to narrate his book. Because if I didn't have to read it for this, like if I wasn't being paid to do it as work, I wouldn't have. 
I would have stopped. Listen, if you're listening to this, Thomas Prower, I think I'm going to send it to and him you're so not, we can get in a fight. And you're not angry and defensive. <laughs> no, but um, I feel like I tried to do a good job of like I, respecting his work too. I think you did. If you're listening to this, Thomas Prower, I will connect you to some of the best queer narrators that I know. <laughs> yes. will do a good job with it. They're queer narrators. They are trained actors. They uh, are practiced, and they're uh, at least semi-familiar with the subject matter. Just. Fucking email me, man. We'll re-record it, please, God. <laughs> Your book loses I will, I will so refer much. You. It loses so much because of the narrator. But like, I did. I think it's so important. And like, look at the incredible conversation it started. And I think that that's the thing is we need to not look at things as like inherently bad or good, but recognize where things fail so that we can like have space to like make up for that and have space for more conversation and. Obviously, there was a lot to talk about with this. So I don't know. I yeah. really enjoyed it. And I will say to to bring it back to my analogy with Critical Theory and Ready Player One, because um, I, I think this is just a super easy example where like uh, Ready Player One like won a bunch of book awards and sold a bunch of copies and everybody loved it. And then Gamergate happened and then everybody hated Ready Player One. It was stupid and Ernest Klein is a misogynist, right? Uh where things change over time. Yeah. And we have to be able to recognize that and not be, you know, uh, ethnocentric while still being critical and applying that to how we can Im- improve and how we can fill in, you know, those those gaps. Like, um, you know, like if Ernest Klein would have done that and then came out with Ready Player Two that resolved those issues that were in Ready Player then One. Then we could have, yeah. Then we could have we could have had a good book, but Ready Player Two has been out for just a little bit and already like it's fucking tanking. Uh Uh-oh. which like it, it, everything just says it's Ready Player One again. And that's um. the lack of self examination that's happening that's causing like a rehash. You know, so by critically analyzing things, you know, even though we have a tendency to get defensive, it's important to like find these holes so that we can fill them for well, later. And I think, yeah, I think that's the thing is that something so at my conference this weekend that I was at, we were talking about astrology and we were talking about compatibility in astrology. And obviously, Astrology in 1970, compatibility astrology in 1970, was focused on, like, heterosexual relationships. Mm -hmm. And now there's a whole, whole, whole bunch of different kinds of relationship structures that work for different people for different reasons and things and stuff. So we're kind of talking about that. And someone was like, what does it mean to be gender non-binary? And my, I fucking love my mentor, but she's old as fuck. She goes, that's when people are not always just interested in a boy or a girl. And I was like... No, it just means they aren't they don't they don't identify as a woman or a man in the like classical senses of what we understand those things yeah. to be. They're outside of the the binary. Right. And I so afterwards um there are several people and I was obviously I don't know if obviously it was the youngest person there attending class and several people were like um, kind of came up to me and they're like, I hope that you can like teach us about this. I hope like that you can like take yeah, a minute to teach us. Like what- the Witchshire feels like it's full of a bunch of old hats. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it, it is, but I think that they're trying to. And so one of the conversations I had um, with one of the women there, because uh, she was like, I, you know, my daughter went to college and she started telling me about this about eight years ago. And I'm just, I'm wondering if I can like pick your brain about this a little bit. And I was like, sure. And she said, it's so hard for me because I feel like, like things are always changing and I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what the newest thing is. And I was like, well, you have to understand this is a brand new subject. We don't even have the language to really yeah. explain and, and that language is this. getting updated we're figuring it out we're, we're finding these things so I was like when someone corrects you and says that you've said something incorrectly say okay thank you that's it just okay thank you and like if you have more questions about like how that's changed you can have those but also you can google it like you yeah. can say okay in the conversation and go home and do your own research. That's okay, but it's important in queerness and in these things to realize that the, this is an evolving field that we're we're figuring out. We're all navigating it together, um, and the best thing that you can do is just have compassion towards people that are trying to make the world better for the people that we love. And you know and love a queer person, I guarantee it. So act like it. <laughs> so that's my that's my thing. And don't ask women who are in women loving women relationships if you can have sex with them please please don't do that don't fucking do that. make a fucking uh, fet life like or everyone like else. don't just don't like i just my first girlfriend and i like it was a very complicated relationship that was like mostly platonic but was still like a very valid relationship and there are a lot of things that happened there because of her mom and all sorts of stuff but literally i like it got to the point that i would just tell people like they would be like oh are you guys looking for a third and i'd be like why don't you just like buy a fucking ticket to the boat like no one's getting on the boat but there's so many of you there's a goddamn line at this point so like trust me someone's asked them that before they probably don't want to otherwise you would know that they would want to have sex with you so just assume that they don't want to do that i think that's a good assumption to make that's my rant is that the episode that is i have a little final clippy clip and then we'll do our outros and then we'll be done with this super fucking long episode i'm sorry i had so many things to say (laughs) all right there are so many things because Tomas Prower didn't say enough of them. Oh, okay. Well, that, so. I mean, that's an eloquent way to put it. <laughs> um, this is a bonus episode sponsored by the Utah Book Festival and from Under the Umbrella. Utah Humanities Book Festival. Yes, thank you. Oh, see, this was written on the plane when we were done, and I thought I had edited it. I didn't. Utah Humanities Book Festival and from Under the Umbrella. You can find us on Patreon and most social medias at Nancy Pod. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your friends, leave us a review, donate. You can donate um, any amount to at dollar compliments on Venmo and we will give you, RJ will give you a tarot reading. Um, anything and everything you do helps us like make content um, for you guys. And we love the show and obviously pretty passionate about the shit. So we'd love to continue doing that for you guys. And you can help us with that by supporting us. If you'd like to get a reading from me, you can find me on Etsy at Laurels of Lux. Uh, if you're interested in my books, I have a new one coming out with Blue Sketch yeah! Press. The Ghost is Always the Machine. Pre-orders are out right now. I trust. I, I promise you, it's unlike any book you've ever read. Yeah. Um, you can uh, find my other books at rjwalkerpoet.com. Uh, you can follow Mancy Podcast on TikTok. Right now, I'm doing a series where I talk about magic in anime, and I identify what kind of magic it is and what its real-world counterpart might be. That's cool. Uh, so check that out. Um, Don't forget about our live show, which is happening this Saturday night, October the 2nd. Yeah, October the 2nd. 7 p.m. Mountain Standard. You're probably going to be listening to this well after that is over. No, we're really... Well, yeah. 
this is the uh, second. We have no idea because this was supposed to be one episode. I might yeah. make RJ just publish it as one three-hour episode and call I, it good. I don't know if Buzzsprout will allow that. We'll figure it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have used none of our hours from this month for Buzzsprout, in yeah, all fairness. Um, yeah, so definitely... Uh, Definitely check out the the live show. I'm going to be publishing the recording of it, but we're going to be going live on TikTok uh, yeah. for that. Um, that's just Mancy Podcast uh, on TikTok. And I want to give like a huge shout out to Thomas Prower. Thomas Prower, thank you so much for just being an incredible human who would bring this stuff to us. And for, you know, whether or not you consented to me ripping it apart, thank you for letting that happen. And thank you for writing a book that inspired such a strong reaction from me it's very hard to do that and i think that's always something special even if it's not all good feelings it's a special feeling sounds good the music was provided by in order of appearance hayden fulker earthy vinky me you and scott Buck.